from the high desert and the great American Southwest. I bid you all good evening, good morning, good afternoon, as the case may be. Covering all of these time zones. What do I mean by that? The entire world's time zones. This is Coast to Coast AM. Good morning in most places. I'm Art Bell. And tonight is going to be an extremely contentious radio program. Very, very contentious. We're going to have Ben Chertoff on. Uh, yes, somehow the distant cousin of Michael Chertoff. Uh, in the next hour from Popular Mechanics. And we're going to talk about 9-11. And I have a whole lot to say about this. And uh, those who have been emailing me, in fact, uh, I have uh, selected a group of emails that I have received recently Real jewels that I'm going to read to you, I don't know, maybe shortly. It's going to get my adrenaline going so much that it's like I want to get the rest of the news out of the way before I begin getting that angry. Uh, President Assad on Saturday has announced a two-stage pullout of Syrian forces uh, from the Lebanese border, but he failed to address broad international demands that he completely withdraw Syria's 15,000 troops uh, after nearly 30 years in the country, Assad also did not respond to the president's demand just a day earlier that Syria withdraw all its troops and intelligence agents from Lebanon before its parliamentary elections in May. Islamic uh, terror groups are becoming increasingly active in Germany and coordinating, apparently, with militants across Europe to recruit fighters to join the insurgency help in Iraq, of course, equipping them, them with such needy items as fake passports, money, medical supplies, security. Officials say that it's one of the best examples of the cross-continent uh, cooperation involved. And uh, one involved an Algerian man arrested in Germany and now on trial in Italy for allegedly helping uh, Muslims from Somalia, Egypt, Iraq, and Monaco recruit some 200 militants from all around Europe to join the fight in Iraq. A team of U.S. and Ethiopian scientists has discovered the fossilized remains of what they believe is humankind's first walking ancestor, a hominid that uh, uh, lived in the wooded grasslands of the Horn of Africa about four million years ago. The bones were discovered in February at a new site called Mill in the northeastern Afar region of Ethiopia, according to Bruce Latimer, director of the Cleveland Museum of Natural History in Ohio. They're estimated to be about 3.84 million years old. And finally, world news-wise, a new Social Security war room inside the Treasury Department is pumping out information to sell President Bush's plan much like any political campaign might do. It's part of a coordinated effort by the Bush administration. The internal taxpayer-funded campaigning is backed up by television advertisements, grassroots organizing, and lobbying from business and other groups that support the Bush plan. The president's opponents are organized as well, though they do not, of course, enjoy the resources of the White House or Treasury to sell their message now. I'm not sure. The president's plan is to allow some certain portion of Social Security money, your money, your money, uh, 
to be put into the stock market so that it uh, it might earn more money would be the i guess the selling point but what if the market crashes uh, or better said perhaps when the market crashes what's going to happen you know this whole idea of putting people's social security money into the stock market i think is nothing but a big blame shifting operation now what do i mean by a blame shifting operation well you see i like most other people i i think that it's clear that if nothing else happens social security is doomed I heard something the other day about well if you're 55 years or older well you're okay but if you're not then you're not okay. I think it's doomed. So here's what I think. I think the administration knows it's doomed. And this way um if you take a good portion of your social security and you put it into the stock market and the market crashes and you lose your money when the entire social security program goes kaboom then they can shift the blame on to you you see they can say well hey you invested your money and it didn't go well and that's your choice you know you took that chance and of course that would be right but it'll be really shifting the blame because now for administrations uh, three at least the government has been stealing that money that's where the the real blame ought to go but you see if it if the money is off into the stock market and things go wrong for you well then they can blame you instead of you blaming them over the years they have taken the money from the social security fund that now makes it a nearly not solvent or soon not solvent and this way instead of you blaming them i.e. the government the government can say to you well you just made a bad investment <laughs> anyway that's how I, in a moment some of the other i'm still trying to get it out kind of news before i get angry type news but it's interesting stuff so stay right there this one's a real winner there's a i guess a, a website or a hosting site for uh the modern version of rants which they choose to call blogs blogs are really just people you know letting loose with what they want to say and it's kind of an area where you know anybody can say anything and sure enough on this site called uh negative zero it sub headline their slogan i guess keeping it real one day at a time keeping it real one day at a time really well until about 2 days ago there was this detailed plan well let me read you a little bit of it it says uh, all right everyone we're going to be part of the largest one of the largest hoaxes ever don't post this on any other message boards read below for details if you tell anyone tell only those you know in real life underlined in real life the great internet ufo hoax on saturday march 19th many people on the internet will hoax the world with the biggest mass ufo sighting in years the craft will zoom around the united states and the world will 
according to the diagram and the link, and they had a diagram and a link, all times are PM unless otherwise noted. Note to you all, you can't get in trouble for reporting this to any of the following. You have my 100% guarantee. Also, all reports can be made anonymously. What the blank do I report seeing? And then it goes into exactly what you should report. The above is a rough estimate of what you saw, a craft with four lights, two of which... Anyway, it goes on describing the craft that all these people in different time zones would presumably hear. And then report, he listed just about every single UFO reporting agency in the world, certainly in the U.S., and he listed my program to call up and, oh, fake it, you know, get through... And just say what you saw, and we're going to have this giant hoax on the 19th of the month. <laughs> so naturally it got sent to me, and I, I went on the site myself, and I just wrote a comment down at the bottom, which said, Hey, idiot, you're busted, Art Bell. Next day, site gone. <laughs> it was just gone. So I guess they're back to the drawing board on the big hoax. What a stupid idea. So there, there it is, folks, from uh, what is it, negative zero, keeping it real one day at a time. Ha! While we're into the subject, uh, someone asks, Art, have you noticed any weird animal behavior? You get anything from California people on weird animal behavior? No, but I do have a couple of stories about weird animal behavior. All right, try this one. Headline is, spate of canine suicides from bridge baffling animal experts on a wet and windy winter's day on the west coast of Scotland. The ancient borough of Dumbarton can appear bleak and depressing. The once fashionable and prosperous shipbuilding center is now little more than a suburb of Glasgow, and it appears even if some of the dogs have, have lost the will to live. Animal behaviorists are concerned at an apparent spate of canine suicides in the town after at least five dogs are said to have thrown themselves from an historic bridge in the past six months. In the once landscaped grounds of Overton House, a country mansion built in 1863 with ornate religious symbolism in the words fear God and Keep his commands carved into the walls. The bridge is fast becoming known as Rover's Leap. Following a rash of unexplained incidents in which family pets have simply decided to leap to their deaths from the bridge, animal welfare experts are warning owners to keep their dogs on a tight leash. You see, animals, dogs, anyway, don't commit suicide. They have a very strong sense of fight or flight according to Doreen Graham of the Scottish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. The incidents at the bridge are indeed of a very great concern to us because we'd like to understand why they're happening. In the latest, a woman was shocked to see her dog suddenly just vault over the top of the bridge and plunge 40 feet to its death with no apparent reason. And this is now five dogs that have done this. Have you ever heard of anything like that in your life? I know you've heard of this. More than 20 rough-toothed dolphins have died since Wednesday's beaching 
by about 70 of the marine mammals. Uh, Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary spokesperson Cleva Heck said Saturday, about a day or so before the dolphins swam ashore, the USS Philadelphia, it seems, had conducted exercises with the Navy SEALs just off Key West, about 45 miles from Marathon, where the dolphins became stranded. Navy officials didn't have a word to say when they were asked if the submarine based at Groton, Connecticut, might have used sonar during the exercise. They were mum. Some scientists surmise that loud bursts of sonar, which can be heard for miles and miles in the water, may perhaps disorient or scare marine mammals, causing them to surface too quickly and suffer the equivalent of what divers know as the bends, or I guess you could say they're committing suicide. Right? If a fish, or a dolphin in this case, intentionally swims upon shore where you know it's going to die, it is in essence committing suicide. Right? Maybe I ought to get this one out. Solar flares and frigid temperatures are believed to be working with human chemicals to eat away at the protective ozone layer above the North Pole, surprising scientists who have been looking for evidence that the planet's ozone layer might be healing. You see, by now, it was thought that the particles, CFCs that were going into the uh, ozone layer and destroying it, uh, would have, uh, since we banned them, it should be healing up, but we're having a problem. The ozone layer protects Earth from dangerous ultraviolet radiation, which can cause skin cancer, right? Last winter, Arctic ozone declined more precipitously than ever before in the, other, in the upper atmosphere, probably because of violent storms on the sun's surface, according to at least one idea. And in recent days, a lower uh, layer of ozone has undergone an extraordinary thinning, because of a level of bitter cold, get this, folks, about minus 110 degrees Fahrenheit, rarely seen in the Arctic in man-made chemicals. One Colorado scientist has raced north to try and document the, the event, expecting now to perhaps sputter out within days, so he's got to get there very quickly. The two unusual findings have experts worried that they don't fully understand the dynamics of ozone depletion. Now, here's a couple of more things to be perhaps concerned about. You decide. Uh, these two items were in a local Tacoma, Washington newspaper called Earth Week. Quoting it directly, scientists measuring the temperature and salinity of deep waters in the southern ocean warned that recent changes there could have a major impact on global climate. Multinational team of researchers says that water at the ocean floor off Antarctica has cooled significantly and has become less salty than it was 10 years ago. Expedition leader Steve Rintal of Australia says the changes could mean the deep water currents are beginning to slow down. You know, I've heard about that somewhere before. Anyway, the second article said temperatures in southern Greenland soared to record levels that were even higher than those normally reached in midsummer. 
The official temperature of 61 degrees Fahrenheit recorded in the southwest coastal town of Frederikshab was the highest winter reading since record-keeping began. And here in the desert, as I've been telling you, uh, oh, I don't know, over the last uh, several weeks, if not months, we've had, without question, the wettest winter on record in the desert. In fact, last week, I think, I put up uh, a picture of the desert here, adjacent to my home, which normally is quite brown and desert-like. We are, after all, no more than about 20 miles from Death Valley. And so this is very serious desert that I live in. Very, very serious desert. It's designed to be that way. We like it that way. But lately, it just hasn't been that way. Lately, folks, it's been raining and then raining more and some more. It rained, in fact, last night. We've been getting so much rain that we have standing water everywhere, beginning to worry about mosquitoes. Things are turning green at a rate that would shock anybody who's ever been to the desert. It almost looks like a golf course out there, and so last week I put up a picture of this golf course. It really is amazing. Now, at the same time, the American Northwest is going dry. I suppose the jet stream has probably driven all of this weather to the south, or perhaps it's El Nino or whatever. They haven't named it yet. They haven't really talked about it. I haven't heard any talk about that. But the American Southwest Desert is becoming a green... My God, there'll be red redwoods here pretty soon if this doesn't stop. And the Northwest is just drying up. So whether that's just some short weird trend or not, I don't know. What I do know is that uh, it represents the, the the wettest winter we've had in all the record-keeping here in the desert of wet winters. So how about that? The U.S. military, you're going to love this, is funding development of a weapon that delivers a bout of excruciating pain from up to two kilometers away. Now, you see, they're going to use this, uh, oh, for example, when there's a riot or something. It's meant to leave the victim unharmed. But pain researchers are angry as hell uh, because it was their work at, you know, coming up with something that would control pain that has instead been used to develop a weapon. And they fear the technology will be used for torture. Uh, let's see. Uh, I am deeply concerned about the ethical aspects of this research, said Andrew Rice, a consultant in pain medicine at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London in the UK. Quote, even if the use of temporary uh, severe pain can be justified as a restraining measure, which I do believe it can, the long-term physical and psychological effects are unknown. So what it boils down to is, these men have done research on a way to treat people in terrible, uncontrollable pain. They've come up with something or another that will treat this pain. It's a wonderful thing. But like most things that have, you know, one really good side, I'm sure somebody in the military said, whoa, ho, ho. pain, huh? Look at that. 
Now we know what causes absolutely uncontrollable pain, and we can project it like a ray gun. So, of course, the military got immediately interested. Uh, they, what do they do? The military breaks things, kills people, and now inflicts pain. <laughs> so they took the idea. And, but, but you see, the other argument to be made for this is it's better to, you know, make somebody feel a lot of pain than to have to put a slug through their forehead. So there's two ways of thinking about this. Uh, these non-lethal methods of controlling crowds and people are much better than lethal ones. But still in all, if you were the researcher doing the, the thing on the pain and they turned it into that, you might be pretty ticked off. As I am this morning for a few reasons that you're about to find out. We'll be right back. Talk with Art Bell. Call the Wildcard Line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5. And dialing toll-free, 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Myths and conspiracy theories. That's what we're about to get into, and heavily at that. Stay right there. Tell you what, let's start out easily in the... Uh the myth and conspiracy side of things, shall we? This would be an easy one, really. You know, 
For a lot of years now, I've listened to people talk about the fact that we never went to the moon. A lot of people think we never went to the moon, right? They have prevailed upon us for a very long time. Wayne Green was one of those people, and there were many others, people who just thought we never went to the moon. Man never did it. Well, a European spacecraft now orbiting the moon could turn out to be a kind of a time machine, well, in a way, as it photographs old landing sites of Soviet robotic probes and, of course, areas where American Apollo crews sat down and even explored. New imagery of old Apollo touchdown spots from the European Space Agency's Smart One probe might just put to rest conspiratorial thoughts that the U.S. astronauts didn't go the distance and scuff up the lunar landscape. They're going to prove it. They're going to take pictures of it. Fringe theorists have said that images of the waving flag, oh, you remember that one, right? Uh, on a moon with no atmosphere and other oddities show that NASA never really went to the moon at all. No serious scientist or spaceflight historian doubts the success of the Apollo program, but we are observing some of the landing sites for calibration and ground truth purposes. That's what he said. What does that mean? Let's think about that statement. We're observing some of the landing sites for calibration. That I get. Calibration, in other words, geographically where these spots are, and ground truth purposes. <laughs> that was uh, the chief scientist of the ESA science program. Ground truth purposes. That means to perhaps reveal to those who have been chattering in our ear with these conspiracy theories all these years that they're whack and we really did land on the moon. I certainly think we landed on the moon. I also think that our own government, that President Bush, our president, whatever I think of the president, I'm no fan of his. You just heard me take off on the Social Security thing a little while ago. I did not vote for the president, which I've told you before. Does that shock you? <laughs> well, anyway, it's the truth I didn't. Uh, so I'm no great fan of the presidents, uh, nor many other presidents for that matter. Um, I was a big fan of Ronald Reagan's, but not, not really this president, nor am I anti-Bush particularly either. Um, it depends on the issue. Now, in, in the case of Social Security, I just told you what I thought a little while ago, but in the case of 9-11... 9-11, when these horrible men took those airplanes and plowed them into U.S. assets and took American thousands of American lives and brought down the World Trade Center buildings and crashed into the Pentagon and took another plane that uh, uh, people, uh, passengers on the plane, courageously crashed before they could do their evil deed, whatever it was, the White House, whatever they had in mind. I pretty much, you see, believe that it came down the way it seemed to come down. Occam's razor, the most likely thing, seems to be true. We know the planes hit the buildings. I know, anyway. It's my belief that they really hit the buildings. It's my belief that the President of these United States, George Bush, or any other president that I've known, even, even Dick Nixon, would never order thousands of their own citizens 
killed in such a horrible attack on American. I don't for one second, not one second do I believe any of it. And oh, baby, have I taken grief for that position. Let me read you a few emails that have come in in the last, uh, I don't know, few days. Okay? This is from Lon C. in Florida. Lon C. says, Hey, Art, why won't you talk about 9-11? Art, who bought you out? Or are you just another mindless government mouthpiece? How come you're not answering the ten questions sent to you by Victor Thrawn? How many times have you read a piece entitled 25 Rules of Disinformation? You keep being the poster boy for the New World Order people like you and the other neocons in the mainstream media make me sick. Wake up, Art, and take off the rose-colored glasses. 9-11 was an inside job. Lawn Sea in Florida. Or this one. This is from Michael Ferreira of uh, Wing TV. Wingnut TV, I call it. Michael Ferreira, he's been... Uh, peppering me with these nasty emails for months now. Um, he says, um, in this particular one that came tonight, he, he says, Art, you're a traitor. You're a coward. You're a sellout of America. Defend yourself, traitor. That's what Michael says to me most times when he writes stuff like that. Little doesn't go beyond that usually. You're a traitor. You're a coward. You're a sellout of America. Defend yourself, traitor. Or how about this from Penny? Penny says the fires of hell are made to roast lying whores like you. Art, the fires of hell are made to roast lying whores like you. Uh, let me see. This is from Jack. I know Jack doesn't say where he is. He said, Jack says, I see you're preparing to have the popular mechanics government disinformation, that's in parenthesis, uh, view of 9-11 on tonight. Will there be an opposing point of view, Art? I doubt it, except perhaps from the listeners. You've gone, Art, from being a pioneer to being a toady for this lying fascist neocon, neocon government. Anyone with a modicum of intelligence will realize the government's claims are lies. And that popular mechanics picked which claims they chose to debunk. The 9-11 Commission's report should occupy the same garbage can as the Warren Commission report. Thank God George Norrie has some courage and is not sold out. Why has your intellect and courage failed, you art? And then, let's see, this is Jerry. Jerry writes, hey, art. Since you're going to have Ben Chirtoff on as a guest this Saturday, well, how about giving equal time to the other side and have Alex Jones on as a guest? George has the nerve to have him on. Do you? Better yet, why not have both Alex Jones and Ben Chirtoff on at the same time and have a debate? Regards, Jerry. And then to follow that up, I got a call from our producer this afternoon who said, Hey, Art, you're not going to believe this. Dave Von Kleist, he's another Alex Jones type. Dave Von Kleist, a publicist, has called 
and is wanting equal time uh, tonight. Now, hmm, let's think about this a little bit. Alex Jones, David Kleist. Now, am I am am I wrong here, or didn't George have Alex Jones on all by himself? Didn't he? Well, was there anybody there to debate him or debunk him? When Alex told his story, why no, there wasn't. <gasps> Wait, he also had Dave on Kleist on, right? All, all by himself, with nobody there to uh, uh, point out what uh, they felt was wrong with what he was saying, right? These are two nine eleven uh, conspiratorial researchers. Right? Alex Jones, I think, is a talk show host on his own. Dave Van Kleist, uh, anyway, 9-11 in plain sight. So, uh, they've both been on uh, all by themselves, I do believe. Is that not true? Why? Yes, of course it is. And so, why in heaven's name would I be required to have somebody on to uh, to argue with my guest tonight who's got his point of view? I'm just curious about that. I got so many emails saying, well, you're going to have one without, without having somebody to, to say the other side of the story? You mean the other side of the story hasn't been told on this program? Gee, where have you folks been? You know it has. So tonight, uh, Popular Mechanics uh, is going, to, and they, they did a pretty good job. You know, they went to the, uh, the Bureau of Standards, was one of their big sources. They went to a lot of scientists, a lot of engineers. They interviewed them about perhaps at least the 16 most popular conspiratorial wingnut theories. And uh, they're going to debunk them as first time, as far as I first time, as far as I know, that this side of it has even been aired on this program. So I think that uh, it's more than fair. Absolutely more, more than fair. Now, here's something else interesting that has occurred. Um, over on the uh, Jeff Rents uh, website, all of a sudden, uh, late today, in a panic, uh, appeared the uh, the article by um, uh, who did this? Christopher Bolin, I think it is. The headline is Bell hosts Popular Mechanics Mag. 9-11 debunker. And and I'll read this whole article, um, and we're going to let uh, Benjamin respond to it. Uh, but basically, the tenets are that uh, he's the cousin of Michael Chertoff. Now, I asked Benjamin about that a little bit earlier. Indeed, it probably is true. He might be the 14th <laughs> millionth. A uh, distant removed cousin of Michael, who's the uh, new Homeland Defense Director. So there, there may indeed be a, a relationship there, uh, you know, but so what? As a matter of fact, I don't even think that Benjamin knew there was a relationship until it was pointed out to him today. Then, like so many articles on the rent site that appear from time to time, I think it's clearly, in my opinion, an anti-Semitic website. Uh, let's see. At the bottom of this article by uh, Bowen on the rent site, it says, Controlled Press Hides Chertier's... Uh, 
I'll get it straight. Chertoff's Israeli Roots. Really? Let's see. Uh, claims that uh, there are ties, Michael's ties, that would be Michael many times removed from Benjamin, Michael's ties to Israel and the Mossad. So these will th- be things that uh, this night I will ask Benjamin about. I'm not afraid of asking anything of anybody, contrary to what these wingnuts who've been sending me these kinds of messages believe. I'll ask anybody anything. And as a matter of fact, I'll give all of you an opportunity to ask anything you would like. This is going to be one point, one one particular point of view tonight. And the point of view is that what you believe was true about 9-11 is, in fact, true in terms of at least how it happened. Now, the conspiracy behind doing it and those who did it and why they did it, we haven't unraveled all of that yet, have we? But the fact that it was uh, people mostly uh, from different uh, foreign countries is probably going to end up to be true, that they took airplanes, smashed them into the buildings, I think is going to end up to be true and already has in my mind. And people who would say that the president of the United States, George Bush, ordered this attack on his own country, I think are off their nut. Okay? So call me what you will, traitor, uh, and all the other names that you've laid on me there. Call me what you will. That is what I will continue to believe. And I think people like you, all you people who have written me these type of things, are off your nuts. That's what I think. I think it's a fringe group that uh, th- that is formed uh, with a gathering. It's like a snowball rolling downhill, getting to be bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, I think it's nutty. Uh, nevertheless, this night we will have Benjamin Chudov on, and he will uh, certainly answer questions on the telephone uh, from all of you, even even the uh, the kinds of questions that uh, uh, may not be covered in the 9/11 report in Popular Mechanics. Uh, this, I'm sure it goes beyond these 16 things, but it'll be opportunity to say what you want to say. I'm not afraid of anybody or anything. And uh, what I tell you is what I believe to be the truth. And I frequently then, of course, will get, well, gee, you can believe in all kinds of other things like UFOs. Well, huh. believe, and I do believe in UFOs because I've seen one. Uh, but I don't think I've ever told you I believe absolutely, because I, I don't, that what I saw was an alien craft. I have said again and again and again, people don't listen because they hear what they want to hear, that it was either an alien craft, or it was a U.S. military test aircraft. Either way, I have said it's a big damn story. It is a big story, but it doesn't mean that I 100% believe there are aliens. I don't know. Till I see one myself, I've seen an unidentified flying object. That much I can personally attest to. Now, the rest of it, a no, but... I will allow people to come on the program and say what they like, and you, many times, in rebuttal, what you would like. That's the kind of open forum this has always been and remains. And again, I feel that having this guest on tonight uh, is no different than having Alex uh, Jones on by himself or Mr. Van Kleist by himself or any of the others that George has had on with that point of view. And with that in mind, this program owes the audience 
uh, perhaps, uh, from my point of view, a little sanity. Uh, all that said, here we go. Open lines. First time caller line, you are on the air. Hello. 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 Yes, hi. You're on the air, my dear. Where are you calling from? State College, Pennsylvania. Welcome. Hi. Hi. I just have a question about the molten steel. Oh, well, go. You're a little early. I mean, the guy to really answer this is about to be on the air. But what is your question? Well, the pools of molten steel were burning 70 feet below the street level for about 100 days after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And jet fuel burns off within a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we saw the black plumes of, of smoke rising mm-hmm. because it was the fires were starving. My question is, if it takes... 5,182 degrees Fahrenheit to make steel into a liquid molten state, mm-hmm. then I would like to know how these, how hydrocarbon fires, which can't burn in an oxygen-starved environment, as these underground fires did, how this could have happened. How does he explain the pools of molten steel burning 70 feet below street level? All right, I can assure you we're going to get to all of that. We are okay. going to get to all of that. We're going to talk about the temperature that steel will begin to melt at, and more importantly, we're going to talk about the temperature at which steel will begin to weaken. Uh, right. And they're very different temperatures. Oh, I know that. I know that. I, I, you know, we've discussed this at length in 9-11 on trial, Victor Thorne's book, and, and also you could ask him, too, um, the collapses of the towers defy Galileo's law of falling bodies and also Isaac, Isaac Newton's first law of motion. The second tower defies um, Isaac Newton's law of motion. The, uh, The cap of that tower tipped to the east 23 degrees past vertical and then reversed direction and then fell vertically into its own footprint. Well, okay, and no if matter... gravity is the only force acting upon that up there, then what you're saying caused it's that? Possible. Yeah, I, well, okay. Um, I, I'll try and remember those things to ask when... Uh, Can I fast I... blast those to you? Well, of course. Okay. All right. Do that, and that'll help me remember. All right, coming up in a moment, if you'll just stay right where you are, it's going to get pretty rough around here. Ben Chertoff is coming up. He's he's the top dog in this category for a magazine that I've always enjoyed, uh, Popular Mechanics, and we're going to talk about 9-11 from a scientific perspective. We'll be right back.
to talk with Art Bell, call the wildcard line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call Art at 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art Bell by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing Option 5, and dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Oh, baby, here they come. Darren in Lansing, Michigan writes, Hey, Art, you're really brilliant to insult your listeners, aren't you? Keep calling those of us names who believe September 11th was a U.S. government operation. Insulting your listeners is a sure way to keep folks tuning in. Oh, nonsense, Darren. That's nothing but a few out there with IQs approaching that of a, I don't know, an eggplant or something. And if they're gone, it won't be a substantive part of the audience at all. We'll be right back. All right, here we go. As research editor for Popular Mechanics, uh, Benjamin Chertoff is responsible for upholding journalistic standards for the magazine, as well as ensuring all the stories in Popular Mechanics are reported completely and accurately. He is the senior reporter for the magazine's special March feature, 9-11, Debunking the Myths, managing a team of dogged and intrepid professional researchers and reporters. Before he joined Popular Mechanics in the summer of 2004, Ben worked as a freelance reporter and researcher for a number of large circulation magazines and publications, most notably, rather, Men's Journal, where he specialized in verifying and bolstering reportage from the early days of the Iraq War. In addition to his reporting, Ben has written extensively about health and science news, as well as general interest features and profiles. And where I feel we should begin is with this 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 article. Uh, and so what I'm going to do, Ben, is I'm going to read it and then on the air and then let you respond to it before we even get started, all right? That would be fine, Art. Good. Thanks. All right, here we go. Uh, let's see. Headline on this Rents site, Bell hosts Popular Mechanics Mag a 9-11 debunker, Saturday, March 5th. As your Coast to Coast uh, Network uh, website says about the upcoming Art Bell show, research editor for Popular Mechanics magazine, Ben Chertoff will discuss the 16 most prevalent claims made by conspiratorial theorists regarding 9-11 and how the staff of Popular Mechanics debunked each of them. Cousin of Michael Chertoff. Because Benjamin Chertoff is a cousin of Michael Chertoff, the new head of the Department of Homeland Security, a massive bureaucratic security agency created as a result of 9-11, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you condone the flagrant and undemocratic nepotism of the Bush administration, for example, this Chertoff connection, whereby a senior government official's cousin has written a propaganda piece supporting the government's seriously flawed and incomplete investigation of the events of 9-11? This is a kind of thing that Saddam Hussein was known for. This is not very American and uh, at all honest journalism. 
Will you ask Ben Chertoff about the journalistic ethics practiced by Hearst Corporation and Popular Mechanics in which a cousin of the Homeland Security Czar has produced a major propaganda piece in Popular Mechanics which clearly seeks to discredit the citizens' 9-11 investigation and calls serious researchers like myself, Eric Shumfield, David Van Kleist, liars and extremists. Will you ask Ben, Popular Mechanics senior researcher, about how Secondary fires, in other words, burning office furniture, supplies, and paper induced the collapse of the Twin Towers as a FEMA building performance study conducted by a team headed by Dr. Gene Corley during one week concluded, including the complete collapse of the Towers, 47 central columns, source, executive summary by Gene Corley, blah, 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 blah. I would advise you to ask him why the Windsor building in Madrid endured a 24-hour inferno with temperatures of 1,000 degrees Celsius without collapsing on February, uh, let's see, that be 12, 13, 2005. Will you, on Coast to Coast Radio, ask Ben about his relationship with his, with his cousin, Michael Chertoff, and will you also ask about Mike's dual national status as an Israeli national by virtue of the fact that his mother was a first hostess with Israel's LLA? Airlines and a Mossad operative in 1949 and 50 uh, during Operation Magic Carpet. Tip, Ben's mom told me that Ben is a cousin of Michael Chertoff, the uh, secretary of uh, DHS. Ben's mom, Judy Dargan, can be reached in uh, Pelham, New York, where Ben graduated from high school in 1998. Judy told me that Ben's dad is Larry Chertoff. I think he's a senior executive with the New York EPA and deals with water issues, but I haven't confirmed that. For more information about Benjamin Chertoff and his ties to Michael Chertoff and Michael's ties to Israel and the Mossad, please read the following. 9-11 and Chertoff, cousin, wrote 9-11 propaganda for PM. Controlled press hides Chertoff's Israeli roots. Will Art Bell ask Ben Chertoff about his ties to DHS? That pretty well covers it. He does say, Miss Bell, I'll be listening. If you fail to openly address and discuss these essential and troublesome facts, I will be forced to accept the conclusion that you are also part of the 9-11 cover-up. Respectively, Christopher Bullitt. Uh... Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me here. Now, let's address uh, some of what was said in this panicked uh, piece that was put up so quickly on the right side. Where would you like to begin? I just read the whole thing. I mean, what's true and what's false? Well, I'll tell you, I, I never thought I'd be compared to Uday and Kuse. So. <laughs> yeah, that was a little rough. I'm not sure if I you know, wear that as a badge of, uh, badge of honor. Um, well, I mean, first of all, my connection to Michael Chertoff. Um, we, I found out about, um, I found out who Michael Chertoff was actually after we had shipped this piece. Um, when I read the New York Times, of course, we uh, in magazines typically you're you're working a month or two months before. Um, no, wait a minute. You didn't even find out that you were related to Michael. I didn't know who Michael Chertoff was until the until the piece went to press, and I saw. My last name on the cover of the, of the New York Times, and of course it's not a very common last name, so it, it jumps out at you on the subway. So what did you do, call mom and say, hey mom, what's the deal? Well, actually I called my father and we chatted about it, and uh, you know, there aren't many Chertoffs, it's a very uncommon name, so in all likelihood there probably is a relation. 
I don't know if that's the case. I don't know. Oh, you mean you're not even absolutely positive? No, not at all. No. I mean, we traced our family tree back as far as we could. And if there is a connection, it's probably in 19th century Belarus, uh. where the family sort of split into uh, into uh. two groups, and they, they didn't talk ever since. So I see. If I am a cousin, and what my mother had said on the phone uh, after Chris Boland had uh, tracked her down and called numerous times, mm. uh, what she did say was that uh, she thought I might be a distant cousin. Uh, but, of course, that has turned into uh, into direct cousin. But um, <laughs> Never met him, never spoken to him. And the Mossad thing? You're going to have to ask Michael Chertoff. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I have no idea. Man, I'll, I'll tell you, all kinds of articles on that rent site are Jew this, Jew that. God, I'm sick of it. All right, all right. Let's get down. Having disposed with that, then, let's mm-hmm. get down to business here. I mean, first of all, even if you are related and you're still not sure, you didn't find out until after you uh, dealt with this article anyway. So, yeah, with Azra going to press with us. So, so, there you go. All right, so, uh, what made you and or Popular Mechanics decide to pursue this madness anyway? Well, what happened was, um, this is going back to October when, idea came up. Um, we opened up the New York Times one day, and there was a half-page ad. In fact, I think there were there were a number of ads. I think this was actually a full-page ad for one of the groups out in California. I think it's reopen911.org. I might be mixing that up. Um, but there was an ad uh, advertisement um, for a book called Painful Questions, mm-hmm. and it listed on this advertisement all these anomalies in the physics of the collapse of the World Trade Center. And they, uh, you know, they cited these as things that the media, the mainstream media, was ignoring, and these were important questions that needed to be asked. Mm-hmm. And they all fit within, you know, popular mechanics in, into what we do, into our field of expertise. The magazine has 102 years history reporting on, uh, reporting on military affairs, reporting on uh, uh, engineering, reporting on science and technology, and all these claims focused on very physical evidence or what they were posing as physical, physical evidence, for instance, that jet fuel doesn't burn hot enough to melt steel. So you know, how could jet fuel have been responsible for melting the steel in the World Trade Center? And we'll get to that. And, and the bottom line is, though, that popular mechanics dealt with this kind of thing. It had access to the scientists. It had exactly. access to engineers. And so you could actually take the evidence and really submit it to the the real people here. Exactly. They said that they that the mainstream media was ignoring it, and we looked at ourselves and thought, well, I guess we're the mainstream media, uh-huh. and let's ask those questions. Let's investigate it. All right. When did that begin? How long ago? I guess we started um, we started the reporting back in it was either October. It was early November when we when we had a team assembled and we started going out and actually picking the stuff apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it and it ran all the way through. Um, through mid-January, I mean, as we were going to press. So I guess it was, it was earlier than that. Um, ben, how did you decide on what the 16 uh, most important claims to investigate would be? What we did was we, we looked through uh, a lot of website searches and, and got Thierry Maison's book and got the Painful Questions book, uh, read through all the literature and watched the DVDs and tried to pick out not only what we saw repeated the most, 
because we wanted to have claims that sort of represented what was out there, the most common 16 claims, but also the most plausible, because a lot of them can, uh, a lot of the claims are sort of at face value pretty, uh, pretty counterintuitive. So we chose the ones that uh, seemed uh, like there could be truth there, and we picked the ones that we saw the most. Okay. All right. And, and so web research uh, and getting the books uh, probably in plain sight as well. But absolutely. I, we watched that absolutely. a number of times. Yeah. All right. Good. Um, because another one I got said, oh, you know, if you haven't seen plain sight, Art, then you're not going to be qualified to be interviewing uh, Ben. Um, so anyway, um, we've got – let's start. Let's just go through all damn 16 of them. This is long-form talk radio. We've got the time to do it. Great. Let's go through each and every one of them. Great. All right? So start wherever you want to. Well, we've got, I mean, we can go in the order of the magazine, or we can any way you want. All right, let's go with the magazine. I've got okay. it right in front of me. Uh, the pod question. Uh, oh, yeah, the pod theory shows up a lot. What is What is the pod theory? The, well, there are a number of different variations on the pod theory, but essentially it focuses on uh, what people have seen in these in these low-resolution stills of the plane uh, flying into the South Tower. Because remember, there's very little footage of the plane flying into the North Tower. Right. So this is the plane that flew into the South Tower. There's uh, plenty of cameras uh, that track this in. It was on CNN. It was on all the major networks. They're taking, uh, when you take a still uh, image of these video shots. Um, it appears uh, in a couple of frames as the plane is flying in, uh, mm-hmm. and you can you can watch it on the video, or you can watch the see the freeze frames. You can there there is what looks like a bulge under the right wing of the um, where the sort of where the wing meets the fuselage of the uh, of the 767 that flew into the South Tower, mm-hmm. and that has turned into all sorts of different things. I mean, there there are claims that it's a missile that is fired right as the plane impacts the South Tower. There, uh, uh, perhaps it's a uh, you know it's a military tanker plane. I mean, there's a, or it's a guidance system. There, are all sorts of different theories as to what this is. So what we did was we took the uh, we took their evidence and the evidence that that was on these sites and the evidence that's put out in, on the the major conspiracy uh, materials and. We sent both video stills and uh, also the clearest picture we could find, the clearest still photo, uh, which was a Rob Howard shot uh, that originally appeared in New York Magazine. It's a, it's a pretty, it's an incredible photo of the of the plane about to hit the South Tower. And we uh, we talked to Rob and we got the actual film and uh, sent that off to imaging experts and actually to a number of imaging experts. Is that uh, the one you've got in in the magazine here? Yeah, that's at the opening okay. spread. There's All right. A, All right. That black and white photo, which um, uh, I believe he didn't even know that the second plane was there. He had just, he was running down the street and, and had uh, uh, taken the, the camera and shot it over his head, and then um, that was the photo that came from it. So we we took the original film and the uh, and the still footage from uh, the original CNN feeds, and we sent them to as many imaging experts as we could, um, mm-hmm. and we found uh, Ronald Greeley, who is at the uh, He's at a space photography laboratory at Arizona State University, and he um, his area of expertise is taking images from uh, NASA probes and from NASA satellites and identifying on planets from this video footage and from these images based on the light formations and the shadows what 
is actually on the surface. Got it. And it's a, and it's a real science. Uh, so, you know, he, if anyone was qualified to do it, he was the one. Um, and he took a look at it and very quickly uh, ran it through uh, his own computer programs and, and, and looked at the, uh, I believe he looked at the video footage itself. And it turns out that there's nothing there because what happens is when you have a video still, uh, the pixels end up getting exaggerated, especially when you blow it up and you try to sharpen it. Oh, I know. It will spill into the other side. I mean, it's a very... It's a, it's it's a very inexact science to try to analyze something from a video. So I know it's like trying to find stuff on Mars. Exactly, Same exactly. Problem, which is why we tried to focus on the photograph itself. And when you, uh, when he looked at the photograph and and uh, yeah, very quickly uh, figured out that um, to a certain extent there's sun glint and also the plane is banked to the left. The engine is to the right of where this pod is supposed to be. And if you actually watch the footage in full motion. You can see um, most of it is just the shadow from the engine as it's flying into the into the uh, into the building, but um, when you see it on the video, there's this enlargement effect that happens from the uh, from from the video, and that has turned into this pod. So then, in every way, a standard seven six zero. Absolutely, absolutely. In in the magazine, if you pick a pick up a copy, you can see that we uh, we juxtapose it next to a uh, I believe it's a picture of a Qantas Airlines seven sixty seven, mm. and you can see that it's just the wing fairing. That, mm-hmm. that juts out. Um, the plane is on an angle on all the shots, so it's a little difficult to see. But I mean, it, it, it's it's a it's a plane, United Airlines 767. So hogwash. No, no, no missile under there. No pod with high explosives, or I don't know what they thought it was. Something like that, though, right? Exactly, exactly. And we also talked to uh, experts at uh, Boeing and at um, we talked to a bunch of military and aviation experts about the possibility of even putting a pod. On an airplane, yes, right there, and the the consensus was, why would you want to do that? And B, it would be a real pain to do that, and you'd have to re-engineer the plane. I, mean, I think one of our experts had said, you know, it's not just like uh, you know throwing a suitcase in the trunk. You have to you know, the, these planes are very light, they're very highly engineered, and to hang something heavy off the bottom of the plane would take an enormous amount of restructuring of the actual wing. Even so, all of, all of that said, your expert said, uh-uh. Uh, here's the evidence. Here's the photograph. It wasn't, there's no pod there. There's no missile there. There's nothing. It's just a plane. Absolutely conclusively. All right. Um, a lot of people think that uh, there was a secret order that went out from, I don't know, on high that all of the U.S. military on 9-11, when this began to happen, was ordered, ordered to stand down. Now, that, that that's, to me, crazy on the face of it. I mean, that, that would involve everybody receiving orders uh, at so many different places. Look, we have this horrible thing that we're about, we, the government, are about to do, and we're ordering you, the military, to not raise one airplane or do anything to try and stop these airplanes that are going to destroy landmarks in New York and hit the Pentagon. We want you all to stand down and not send any jets up. These people believe that, right? Yep. And, and of course, it would take uh, thousands of people. (laughs) Yeah. To keep their mouths shut, right? If such an order really went out. Um, All right. Hold it right there, Ben. We'll be right back. It's bottom of the hour. Ben Chertoff is my guest. And uh, we're discussing 9-11. Ben is from Popular Mechanics. They would be the people who would know how to look into this. So if you want to ignore this evidence, you do so at your own peril. We'll discuss each and every one of these 16 
probably more before the night is done. Keep your dial right there. with Art Bell. Call the Wildcard Line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5. And dialing toll-free, 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Tonight, Ben Chertoff is here from Popular Mechanics, and he's talking about the science of the collapse of the buildings in New York and the Pentagon as well, and a whole lot of other things that are involved in the, I don't know, the crazy claims out there. We'll get back to them one by one in a moment. You know, a lot of these are technical claims made, and we're going to deal with those. But, you know, it's, to me it's embarrassing that the second biggest claim would be no stand-down order, that our military had been virtually told to keep all the planes on the ground and not challenge people who are about to blow up our our buildings. Uh, but, nevertheless, there it is. No stand-down order. Deal with that one, uh, Ben. Well, it's, it, this is one of my favorites because it's, it's incredibly complicated. And um, it, to a certain extent, there it, it's one of the more compelling um, claims that you see bounced around. And it's sort of the basis of the whole theory. I mean, if, there's, if, if, if the government was going to make this happen, then there would have to be some sort of stand-down. It's sort of the uh, be-all, end-all theory. But um, and, and also it, it, it shows, I mean... It, a lot of these conspiracies, uh, they, they have such animosity towards the government, yet um, have, this, have this 
assumption that everything is going to in the government is going to work uh, like clockwork. You know, if there's if a plane is off course for just a second, it's going to be immediately intercepted by fighter jets. Yeah. Which, of course, um, on the morning of September 11th, was not the case because. NORAD, which is the uh, North American Air Defense Command, which mm-hmm. is the uh, which is the military body that is responsible for uh, protecting U.S. and Canadian airspace, that was set up during the Cold War, and the infrastructure of NORAD was looking outwards for threats. I mean, they had radar stations that run the coast. Um, I mean, since September 11th, of course, this has all been uh, changed quite drastically. In NORAD's kind of, of course, second, but uh, prior to life, September 11th, they were on that morning. Out. Yeah, exactly. On that morning, um, they had radar stations ringing the coast. There was no radar coverage inside. They relied on air traffic control to vector their fighter planes. And they only had, in all of North America, 20 planes on alert. In the U.S., in the, in the contiguous 48 states, there were only 14 fighter jets on alert, and those were... Two up in Otis Air Force Base. Uh, I mean, in terms of the ones that were close to the World Trade Center, there were right. two up in Otis Air Force Base. Um, and of course, once the hijackings occurred, um, air traffic control for a long time was kind of scratching their heads. They didn't know what was going on because if you uh, talk to the FAA guys, and of course we talked, uh, they were like our best friends at one point because we were we were on the phone almost every day with a new set of questions. Uh, and talk to the air traffic controllers, um, and also talk to the the guys over at NORAD. Before September 11th, uh, if if you had simultaneous loss of transponder and radio radio contact, that meant one thing, and that was that the plane had crashed. So there was an initial lag time there, um, and NORAD got warning. I mean, the, the air traffic control literally had to pick up the phone and call NORAD directly and say, "Listen." There's something screwy with this plane because they were able to briefly pick it up on their primary radar, air traffic control was, and said, you know, I think we have a hijack situation. And, of course, there hadn't been a domestic hijack. I think there might have been, I think it was 91 or or perhaps before, but I'm um, pretty confident that in that decade before 9-11, there hadn't been any domestic uh, uh, hijacks. And NORAD was postured to intercept planes coming in from the coast. Well, we're getting a lot of static on this line for some reason. Are we? Oh, no. no I'm not surprised. Anyway, it, it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll live with it or establish a new connection in a bit here. So uh, keeping in mind, NORAD at that time, uh, pre-9-11, was looking outward for threats, not at domestic air travel, not NORAD. Exactly. That wasn't their job. And, and if you remember before 9-11 and after the Cold War, NORAD was, to a certain extent, fighting for their existence. I mean, there was a lot of lobbying in, in Congress that you've got this expensive sort of dinosaur agency out in Cheyenne Mountain that's, you know, tracking Soviet bombers that don't exist anymore. I mean, they, they, they had their big PR campaign. They do this every year, which is tracking Santa Claus. Um, they, uh, they, they tried to sort of reposture themselves as, uh, as, a, as an agency to assist with um, domestic threats such as drug runners coming into the country. So they did, from time to time, track drug runners. Uh, of course, those were all coming over the borders and into the U.S. Um, but that morning, they, uh, they only had, and this is again, changed, there were only 14 fighters on alert. There were two up in Otis. They were called. They, of course, did scramble. And you have to understand there have been all these reports that, that came out and all these claims that, you know, there, there are hundreds of Air Force bases with fighter jets, much closer. But the, the important fact to remember is, 
you can't get a fighter jet in the air right away. It's not like going out to the garage and turning on your car. No, we could only talk about the ones that were on alert. It's getting out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a fighter jet in alert is fueled. It's 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 ready to go. It's armed. It's ready to fly at a moment. Yeah, got it. So of those? Of those, 14 in the U.S. There were only, on the eastern seaboard within range of Washington and New York, there were only five. Um, officially, there had to be two. I mean, uh, had to be four on alert. There happened to be an extra one at Langley. There were three down there after we talked to uh, the guys down at Langley. Um, that was not an unusually small amount uh, at that time to be on alert? No, that was that was what was required. That's what always, yeah, it was the standard operating procedure before 9/11. Okay. And um, there were, I mean, think about when you think about it in the pre-September 11th mindset. Why would you have more on alert? No, it's I mean, there's, uh, what what they would do is oftentimes uh, during the Cold War intercept Soviet bombers. Uh, those were from bases uh, mostly up in Canada, but there was no need to have more, or there there was no perceived need. To have more than 14. Points. All right, so who was actually scrambled? Who got where? Well, what they did was, uh, North, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Northeast Air Defense Sector, um, uh, NORAD is divided into smaller segments, but Northeast Air Defense Sector, which is uh, up in, um, uh, I believe it's up in New York, upstate New York. Um, New York, um, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Boston Air Traffic Control, Boston Center, called. Um, Neans and said, we've got a problem. You guys should scramble flights. So they scrambled. But the problem is, standard operating procedure for NORAD, and this is still the case today, when you scramble a jet, the, the pilots are told to take off, and they're not given a location. They're, they're told to get to the air. They're right. vectored out to a holding pattern, usually right. offshore, right. to keep them outside of, the, outside of the, the domestic traffic patterns. Because you remember that civilian airspace is extremely crowded, and of course, air traffic control has uh, sovereignty over. I mean, uh, civilian air traffic control has sovereignty over all of the civilian airspace. So they would be vectored, usually offshore, to kind of hang there, and then told where to go. Um, now, at that point, um, they they had had advance warning on one plane, and that was the plane that um, I believe it was a plane that hit the North Tower. Um, they. Um, New York Air Traffic Control um, finally spotted United Airlines Flight 175, which is the uh, which is the plane that hit the South Tower. Um, by this point, um, no, I'm sorry, I, I, I mixed that up uh, slightly. Yeah, no, they they were informed that Flight 11 was hijacked, um, and then um, there was. I mean, you have to understand that as a civilian air traffic controller, having never had a situation like this before. It was very confusing, and well, there sure was, it was. I heard there was a great deal of confusion. Absolutely, because I mean, you're sitting there at your radar screen, and you think the plane's crashed, and then you see that it's not crashed. I you don't know what's the, going on. I, I think the hijacker actually—they turned off the transponders, right? So that exactly, that they drop off the uh, the regular computer screens. Yeah, the, the way air traffic control radar works, and this is this is something that's always glossed over, and it and it seems to the sort of Hollywood. Um, you know, movie example. It's it's this very elegant radar system where you can you know you can just pinpoint what you're looking at and, and the computer knows what it is because they're actively transmitting. That's how transponders work exactly, yeah. and yeah. it'll tell you the altitude because remember you're looking on a two-dimensional screen, so you'll see the altitude, you'll see where the flight's coming from, where it's going to, what flight number it is, what the airline is, and some other information. When you turn off the transponder, um, you have to rely on primary radar, and the way 
radar systems worked that day at most of the air traffic control systems is that you couldn't see primary radar returns, which is actually radar from uh, bouncing, bouncing out the plane and coming back yep. in the paint. You couldn't see that on the same screen that you could see the transponders. Understood. So you'd have to switch screens, and that led to an enormous amount of confusion. And, of course, when you get out into over Ohio, and this, this was the issue later in the day um, with, uh, with the uh, Flight 77 and then Flight 93, the primary radar coverage isn't that good. Because uh, and it and it is not. I mean, the, the way the primary radar works is it's a it's it's a stacked and sort of pancaked uh, system. So you have certain air traffic control centers can see certain airspace, but they can't see below that. Mm-hmm. So the planes were not. I mean, nobody had thought that this would ever happen. It hadn't happened before. There hadn't been a case where a plane had lost uh, transponder and radio contact, and so. To a certain extent, these guys were left to improvise and to find it as well as they could. But they did call NORAD. They did call several, NORAD several first, times. They did, um, and and they called also for Flight 11. At one point, they thought it was going to Washington because they didn't know where it was headed. Um, and then New York Center, um, which is New York Terminal Approach. Uh, I'm sorry, not New York Center, but New York Terminal Approach. JFK actually called. Uh, NIADS, and this is outside of the chain of command. This is completely outside of the chain of command. They were just picking up the phone and dialing the number. Because there was really no precedent for this. None so they whatsoever. they were picking up the phone, a regular old phone, and calling NORAD and saying, hey, trouble here. Uh, so exactly. Anyway, we've got to jump to it. What happened uh, to the jets that were scrambled? How far did they get? How close did they get? Well, what happened was they ended up out in a holding pattern over uh, right over the Atlantic Ocean off of Long Island, because nobody knew where these planes were. Because NORAD didn't have its own system of radar that could see effectively inside the, that, that air corridor, especially when you get into western New York. And um, the, so, so these, these planes are being held out there. They are, of course, under the... Um, when, if they're going to be vectored in after a flight, they're going to be vectored in by air traffic control because it's, they're flying in one of the busiest air corridors in the country. Um, and they, uh, so they were hanging out over the Atlantic Ocean. Air traffic control was scrambling to try to find these flights. They couldn't find the flights. Did, did they ever get vectored? Um, eventually, uh, they, were, they were brought into New York City, and that was um, after the second tower was hit. And, of course, okay. it, it happened in quick succession. Right. And it took a while for the news to filter back. I mean, this stuff, there, there is no command center here where everyone knew everything that was going on. Understood. You, you but the, big... the accusation that there, there was a stand-down order is ludicrous. It is absolutely ludicrous. And besides, at that point, you also have to remember that uh, these, these planes were flying under a rule of engagement, um, and this was sort of standing, um, and this goes way back to the, to the Constitution, that the military can't police the, the civilians of the U.S. So, right. And these planes were under posse comitatus. And they, they they couldn't fire on the on the uh, on the jets that flew into the World Trade Center. That the the only time those rules of engagement were changed was later in the day when um, and the, I believe the way the uh, it was uh, President Bush had authorized um, NORAD to use lethal force against if there were more flights out there. Of course, that was way too you late. You know, Ben, of all these. Uh, of all these claims, the only one that I was ever tempted to believe could be true was the thing on Flight 93. I, I, I thought, you know, if it was shot down, um, 
hard as it might be, I would understand a presidential decision to do that at that point. So I didn't rule out the possibility that it could be shot down, that uh, perhaps nothing was said about it. I, I thought, well, that one might be logical, but that's not what happened, is it? No, it's not, and it's funny. I felt exactly the same way when we started working on this, and I had Did this, you? I had this, I had this suspicion that, like, uh, you know, we we went into this trying to find out if there was any truth, because that would have been the scoop of the century um, if there had been truth in any of these. That's uh, a good point. Yeah, it, I mean, this is that would have been, you know, what every journalist prays for uh, would have been bigger than Woodward and Jern, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, of course. Um, but we um, going into the uh, investigating flight ninety three. Um, I thought personally, and I think a bunch of us thought, there might be some truth there, because it does make sense. The order had been given. The authority was there. Um, but as we started to really go through the evidence and a lot of these claims that, for instance, there was a white jet in the area, that the debris field was eight miles long, and there were right. human remains you know, far away, you know, the way that you read it, uh, because this was coming from news reports that came out that day, and the day after, when everyone was in a state of massive confusion, you read those, and there's no direction attached to it. There's no. Uh, it, it's tough to infer sort of where the plane was, where this debris was, and also um, it's just the very nature of the news cycle is that these reports that come out initially mm. are going to be updated and revised as the news cycle goes on. I mean, it doesn't mean that the, the news is lying, but it means that the news is. Uh, daily newspapers. I mean, they did an incredible Herculean effort reporting this stuff, but you know, they're, they're, the nature of the day was that they didn't have all the information all the time. And so, as time goes on, this stuff gets uh, revised and updated. Of course, those aren't cited in any of these uh, conspiracy theories. Those are those are sort of forgotten about. But as we went into Flight 93, uh, what we had to do first, and this is when the sort of everything fell into place was make a map, figure out where the debris actually landed. Uh, one of the theories was that, uh, that there's, this, there's this piece of engine, and if you look at the news reports that came out uh, around the time of uh, September 11th and the, and the days following, that there's this engine that was uh, variously placed at six miles away, at a mile away, at you know, 9,000 yards away. And the theory is that uh, a heat-seeking missile had hit the engine, which mm. knocked it off. Yes, uh, knocks it off way down the flight path, and then and then the you know the plane coasts for a while. And then but but the truth is, I guess when a plane hits at 500 miles an hour, the engine with a lot of weight goes sailing, right? Exactly, and that's not uncommon. When we talked to a whole bunch of crash investigators, and they've seen this happen before, they've actually seen it go much an engine go much farther. Much further. In a in a case in Alaska. Um, it, it, I mean, the point is, the NTSB investigators are nothing unusual here. Um, the, the plane was coming in somewhere between five and 600 miles an hour, and it, and it crashed in a space of 30 feet. And you've got the engine, which is extremely dense. Uh, it, it, one uh, of the engines were augered into the ground, the other uh, rolled along down a hill into a catchment basin, and it's directly in line with where the flight is going. Isn't there audio, plenty of audio, or at least quite a bit of audio evidence, people on cell phones with relatives and others describing that the passengers were going to take control of this airplane? I mean, it, was that wrong? No, that was absolutely true. I mean, there was there was plenty of uh, audio evidence. Um, 
uh, people are making calls from the airphones. They have recordings of this. We've all heard them. Uh, you know, we've gone through the transcripts. And um, there is some confusion. It, it, it seems now to be the case that uh, they didn't quite make it to the cockpit, that they were about to bust the cockpit door open, and then the hijackers themselves drove the plane in because they knew that um, they, you know, they were going to get... Uh, uh, overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the passengers behind them. Well, uh, however it happened, though, there's nothing to take away from the heroic actions of those passengers, as, as we understand them. You didn't find anything in your investigation that takes away from that, did you? No, none whatsoever. In fact, Flight 93 was, was um, when we went through this, it was the one that at first we thought, this is the one that's plausible and we're probably going to find something, and then it was... And then um, it was also the the, um, the section that just very quickly um, the, the pieces all fell into place, and very quickly it was obvious that um, there was no jet that shot them down. So you were actually approaching doing this story then with a pretty clear, open mind, uh, in, in that you even thought the same thing I did about this flight, that it, it, it could have been shot down, and what a horrible decision it would have been, but a big story to uncover, to be sure, and you would have uncovered it and told that story if it really was that way. Absolutely, and that's the case for the rest of the, for the entire article. I mean, imagine if any of these were true. That would be huge. That it would be huge, yes, of it, course it, it would. It's the scoop we all dream about as journalists. All but, right. uh, the fact of the matter is they just weren't. When we come back, we need to talk about melted steel. That's a central part of all this business so and you know temperatures and all of that all right i great good all right hold it right there from the high desert my guest is ben chirtoff from uh, popular mechanics magazine uh, they would indeed be the right people to go to the engineers the stress guys the people who construct buildings scientists who can look at the evidence um, video people and uh, picture people who can see if that pod really was there. And when we come back, one of the central parts of what the conspiracy people are saying, that that steel just could not have melted. It simply could not have melted, and it should have been standing after that jet fuel burn. When we come back. Code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from East of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From West of the Rockies, call Art at 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art Bell by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5, and dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. 
From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. It is. You know, what I really should have done is done tonight just purely with Ben and then tomorrow night taking calls for Ben because it's going to be that big. I I know that. We're never going to have time to get everything and get calls, too, but we're going to try, so stay put. Some of the conspiracy loonies really ought to have to read this, the way they demand that we read uh, there and watch their DVDs and so forth. Popular Mechanics. Uh, my guest is Ben Chirdoff. Ben, we're going to have to hurry through some of this. Uh, we, we need a lot more hours, and even if I had them, we still wouldn't be even, believe me, with the number of hours devoted to the other side on coast. Nevertheless, let's hit some high points. Jet fuel, not hot enough to melt steel. They make lots of noise about that one. Yeah, that's a big one that's everywhere, and that was on that full-page ad that we saw uh, that really set this whole thing in motion. Uh, well, it turns out that uh, that's true. Jet fuel doesn't necessarily burn hot enough to melt steel, but the point is steel doesn't need to melt to have a collapse like we saw on September 11th. Oh? Yeah. Um, and and as you actually get into the engineering of steel, you, you learn that it's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting building material. We talked to um, numerous firefighters and engineers on this, uh, uh, one who was a deputy chief of uh, the New York City Fire Department, and uh, he mentioned to us, he actually wrote the book, Collapse of Burning Buildings. Right. Um, he said he'd never seen melted steel in a building fire, at least uh, right when they put the fire out. But what he had seen was a lot of twisted and warped steel. And the way steel works is, first of all, it's, it, it is a very good conductor of heat, which is why you have fireproofing on tall buildings. Like of course, that. yes. And, of course, the World Trade Center had spray on fireproofing. Um, and when steel gets hot, and what happened when the planes hit it was that, uh, first of all, it, it knocked out a lot of the exterior facade, which was structural to that building, which was very unique to its construction, uh, especially for that the, the, for the time it was built, um, and it took out some of the interior columns. What, what happens when the steel gets hot, that fireproofing is knocked off, and you only need fireproofing knocked off in a small place for the heat to start to transfer to the entire beam. The, as, as steel gets hot, it, it doesn't melt, but what happens is, well, you get hot enough, it'll melt, but what happens in a fire is it expands on both ends, and it also softens. And the, but, the, but the most important thing, and what was sort of so counter... it bends. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it, and it becomes softer, and it loses its structural integrity. And you've got to realize that these buildings are put together very carefully and very tightly so that when you've got structural components that are changing shape, that are expanding, it's going to do uh, quite a bit to the structural integrity of the building itself. And but the but the one of the most important takeaways from the whole thing is that the jet fuel didn't burn for that long. What happened was the planes went in, the jet fuel burned for about ten minutes, and you had this very intense heat for ten minutes, mm-hmm. and that set everything else that was on those floors on fire. And so you've got that fire and that burned for quite a while um, until the until the towers actually collapsed. You mean like all the furniture and the exactly you've got furniture office, everything. Exactly. Furniture, computers, desks. Uh, carpets, drapes. Uh, and that reached what kind of temperature? Well, it probably uh, reached around 1,800 degrees. 1,800. Is... All right, so the steel then begins to bend, and then the floors start to pancake. And uh, you had some engineering uh, looks at that, right, on pancaking of floors and the, the stresses when one floor bangs down on, on the next? 
Exactly, exactly. What happens is you have this this massive heat, and it's going to soften, and it, and it worked differently. Uh, we, we're... We were lucky enough to work pretty closely with uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, and they had the luxury of um, almost two years and a, a lot of funding and time to go through and sort of pick up where the FEMA report left off. Many of these conspiracy theories cite the FEMA report as uh, you know proof that there's a cover-up because it was so uh, abbreviated and short, and they only uh, worked on it for a limited amount of time. But what's important to remember is the FEMA report was a preliminary report, and the NIST investigation is huge, and they had a lot of time to go through this. And what they did was they built literally a replica of some of the office floors in the Trade Center. Right. And using computer modeling, they figured out where the fuel went when the planes hit. And so they were able to spray fuel into the building, into their model, at the places that uh, it would have gone uh, in the actual buildings, and then they lit the whole thing on fire. And the result? What they found was that the steel weakened significantly, and they, they, they think that there were pockets of, of areas that were, that were over 1,800 degrees, and at that point steel um, has usually less than 10% of its structural strength. Wow. So what happened, I know, it's, it, I mean, it really did weaken it, and... It's a combination. Uh, what brought the towers down wasn't just the fire, and it wasn't just the impact of the planes, but it was a combination of the both. Because when the planes hit, there was spray on fireproofing that was knocked off, which led, let the steel uh, become vulnerable to the heat. And uh, it was also knocked out some of the structure of the building itself, so it didn't need as much heat to bring it down. So no mainstream people you talked to at all uh, went along with this planted explosives theory no none whatsoever we talked to i mean in terms of structural engineers uh and even explosives experts we talked to um had to be at least 30 top structural engineers um uh those who had worked on the investigation and those completely independent of the investigation we couldn't find one person who uh who would believe that uh they were not one yeah in fact all the evidence points there are oceans of evidence that point to the contrary and and the National Institute of uh, Standards and Technology is it? Yes. Yes. Uh, very, very reputable group of scientists. In other words, they they prove that's what brought the buildings down. Yeah, that 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 is. And you know, they weren't even looking into it for the. I mean, their the purpose of their investigation wasn't to say whether it was uh, you know bombs or an airplane, but um, because from the outset, the evidence even before you investigated is overwhelmingly. Uh, on the side of uh, what we saw happening that day, and uh, and they had the time, and they and they proved pretty conclusively what had happened. What are the puffs of dust supposed to mean to these conspiracy theorists? Well, that goes into the theory that there were explosives actually planted in the building, oh, yes. and there are many different takes on this on this theory. Um, the idea being that the the plane flying in was sort of the cover, and then. The explosives, these you know controlled demolition, uh, I've heard them called squibs, were placed strategically throughout the building to ensure that they came down, and also you know to make sure that it came down very neatly so that there wasn't damage to the surrounding areas, so that Wall Street wasn't wiped out. It, it gets very complex, and so as you watch the videos and the replays of the building's collapse, you can see. As they start to collapse, there are areas where dust and, and debris is ejected forcibly outside of the building. Yes. Uh, 
out of the windows. Yes. Uh, I mean, it literally are the windows breaking, and that has led to the idea that you know, those are Explosions. demolition squibs. Those are those are controlled demolitions. But in uh, fact, they were what? Well, you have to realize that uh, most of an office building, and the World Trade Center included, is air because you've got these massive open floor office spaces. So what happened is, as this, as one floor is slamming down on the other, mm-hmm. you've got this enormous overpressurization of the floor. Of course. So all this air has to go somewhere. Blows out happened, the windows. Exactly, it blew out the windows, and that's 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 what it is. So you could, you, yeah, I suppose you could cite it as evidence of explosives, uh, but in fact it was one floor collapsing upon the next, and of course it's going to create overpressure and blow out the windows, and that's what did it. Exactly, exactly. It's really the simple answer that, that, that answers this question. Um, um, no plane debris at the Pentagon. Let's jump over there very quickly. Uh, this one I've heard, uh, on my, I've had people challenge me, uh, there's no plane, they say, that hit the Pentagon. This is ridiculous. There were no plane parts there. Um, and then I usually ask the person, well then, okay, what happened to that airplane and all those people? And they say, well, well, we don't know. Maybe it flew by and something else, a missile hit it or whatever. So deal with the Pentagon thing. That's one of the most widespread theories. Yes, that yes. That came out in uh, Thierry Maison's book, uh, The Big Lie, which was actually a bestseller in France for a period of time. Um, the the no-plane theory uh, comes from this perceived lack of debris. And, of course... The World Trade Center was very well covered by the media. Uh, the Pentagon is a, is a much more secure location. There are very few, many fewer cameras there. You of can't course. really get up close. And also, just the nature of the crash. I mean, the planes that hit the uh, World Trade Center were hitting into a... At that level, it's fairly thin steel. The Pentagon is made out of reinforced concrete. And when a plane hits it, a plane is very, very thin aluminum. And the plane isn't going to leave, uh, you know, a, a cartoon cut out of itself. There's not going to be a plane that's just sitting there intact. I mean, the thing was coming in upwards of 500 miles an hour and hit reinforced concrete. It literally disintegrated. It also hit part of the ground first, apparently, right? Exactly. Because there's the this wind- big, big thing about the size of the hole in the Pentagon. Right, the size is too small. What happened was, the, was uh, the, one of the wings hit the ground and started to shear off. And then, of course, as the body of the plane went into the Pentagon, the wings, which are even lighter and filled with fluid, became almost a liquid-like state and flew in uh, and, and had already sheared off at this point. So, right. So what you have is this very compact, what does, um, you know, to, to a certain extent resemble a missile, of course, it's a passenger jet, uh, that's what actually entered the Pentagon. Uh, and they, and of course, they did find the plane. It was part of it was uh, it was halfway into the basement at the end, and it was compacted into about 20 feet. And there was also enormous amounts of small debris littering the lawn of the Pentagon. Well, there photographs were photographs of that, and, and not only photographs, but eyewitness testimony of people who said they were holding plane pieces in their hand. Exactly. And uh, other evidence that some people were too, I don't know. I guess um, shocked to even film. Yeah, it's it's you know it's it's a tragedy and it's very gruesome and um, and and talking to people who had been there that that really came out on the phone that um, I mean these people found body parts they found the black box um, I mean there is just an enormous wealth of physical evidence that screams 
there was a Boeing that hit the Pentagon. With all of that, why do they still maintain that it was some sort of missile and that this plane somehow mysteriously disappeared? And <sighs> Then I, I, I think there is another theory that all the people were shepherded uh, who would have been on these planes into some other plane to be killed, American citizens. Isn't there something like that? Yeah, it's called the bumble plane theory. We didn't uh, so much get into that. Um, the idea is that um, at, uh, there, there, and there are different takes on this, that it was at Newburgh, that it was at Otis Air Force, there are all sorts of different Air Force bases that are cited, that um, there's, a, there's a point where two of the flight paths cross each other. So the idea is that there they landed, they, uh, they, they, they herded all the passengers onto Flight 93, and then Flight 93 uh, was shot down to you know, destroy that evidence um, because uh, there's this sort of perceived... Uh, conspiracy about the lack of the planes being completely filled. Of course, that's a normal occurrence in airlines, but um, you know, taken out of context, it's used as evidence that uh, that this was all planned from beginning so <laughs> fit everyone on to Flight 93. I hear you. I hear. Uh, the World Trade Center Building Seven. Now, that one seemed strange to me at the time. A little bit. I didn't understand the whole thing either. I mean, the two buildings came down, and then later. Another building came down that wasn't hit by an airplane. Uh, they make a big deal out of that, right? Right, and that seems to be the one that, um, at the end, they'll say, "Well, okay, fine, all the other stuff, you know, whatever." But uh, you have to admit that the World Trade Center Seven was brought down with a controlled demolition. A lot of that stems from the FEMA report because uh, the, the Federal Emergency Management Agency uh, didn't have much time to spend on World Trade Center 7, and they didn't do much investigating into it. Of course, National Institute of uh, Standards and Technology is now working on that, and we were able to talk to their researchers about what they believe happened. And? Well, it turns out that the damage to the building facade, and they were able to piece this together from the evidence that, they, that was collected from Ground Zero. Of course... That, that is indeed uh, another conspiracy in itself, that all the steel was shipped overseas immediately afterwards. Um, I mean, of course, most of the steel was. I mean, you had two buildings worth of steel, but a lot of it was collected as evidence. I mean, small pieces of it. You don't need all the steel to, make your, uh, to, to do your investigation. What happened was with World Trade Center 7, when the North Tower collapsed, uh, an enormous amount of debris fell on the building itself and actually scooped out upwards of 25% of the south facade. My and of course, there are no... I'm sorry? I just said, my God, that's that's already documented visually at this point? Well, there aren't many photos of the south facade, which is the problem, because that was below where the World Trade Center was, and most of lower Manhattan was uninhabitable. You couldn't, You just couldn't get down there at that point. But they were able to piece together that 25% of it was knocked out. And of course... World Trade Center 7 itself was an unusual design. It had these massive open floors, so you had many, many thousands of square feet of, of, office, feet, of office space um, without load-bearing columns in between them. There were, fewer, uh, there were fewer columns carrying load. And so knocking out a couple of those really destabilized the entire building. And as you watch these videos of the building, you can see, uh, and they were able to, NIST was able to chart exactly how the collapse happened. Um, some of the interior portions on the, on the, uh, on the eastern uh, south face of the, of the building were knocked out. Of course, a fire raged in there for seven hours. Uh, most of it fed from a pressurized diesel line from 
the basement, which was not available to the FEMA uh, investigators. They didn't know about this. So that just fed the fire. Exactly. So hour for, after hour. For seven hours. And so you have um, one of the uh, structural columns of the building on the, on the east side uh, breaks down, and you can actually see before it collapses. Um, when you look at the, uh, some of the photographs on the video footage, and this is what NIST did extensively, you can see that the penthouse drops away, uh, and they disappear into the structure one after another. And then you see the building starting to fall from that east side of the structure. Uh, that falls first, and then that pulls down the west side of the structure. Hmm. All right, good. Um, back to the Pentagon for a sec. Uh, a lot of people also said that the, there were a lot of the windows unbelievably, incredibly, simply could not be intact. Those windows would have to be shattered, windows close to where, in fact, the plane entered the Pentagon. But there's a reason why those windows didn't shatter, right? Absolutely. They what were, is it? They were they were made not to shatter because they were blast-proof windows. Remember, it's the Pentagon, folks. And so what you have is this structural that you have, you have reinforced concrete and then these windows are made of blast resistant glass, which they had installed, uh, I believe it was the summer beforehand. We were able to talk to the, uh, talk to the guy who designed and installed these windows and he said, you know, he was, you know, all said and done, it was a tragic day, but he had to, you know, say so he was kind of happy his windows held up and they were meant to withstand a blast like this. So they performed as they should and of course, not all the windows survived. Many of them broke, especially right. those immediately surrounding the crash. Right. But a lot of them also survived. And uh, the reason for that is because they were blast windows, for what it's worth out there, folks. Um, all right, the F-16 pilot, um, somebody supposedly, I, I guess Alex Jones, supposedly interviewed a pilot who claimed that he shot down or that he, he knew somebody, I'm sorry, he interviewed somebody who said he knew somebody who shot down uh, Flight 93, is that correct? That is. And, you know, to Alex Jones's credit, he, he had a follow-up article on this, and he, um, he, he wasn't sure if this was true, but it got repeated all over the Internet. The first time it appeared was on the Alex Jones show uh, with this uh, retired Army colonel who said that he had met the guy who shot down Flight 93. Uh, and then eventually it came out on Let'sRoll911.org that uh, they, they named the pilot, and they named him as Major Rick Gibney. Um, and uh, Rick Gibney is actually Lieutenant Colonel Rick Gibney, and he is... Not, not a major at all. Not a major, no. Colonel. Okay. Um, he flies out of North Dakota, out of the 119th Air National Guard. And, of course, uh, you know, what is, a, what is a National Guard pilot from North Dakota doing out in Pennsylvania shooting down Flight 93? Well... Uh, the 119th maintains a detachment at Langley, and those jets that, that were launched and scrambled that day uh, mm -hmm. actually were flying from the 119th. Uh, but we went back to uh, the 119th and talked to them and talked to Lieutenant Gibney and uh, talked to their uh, press people there and went through their records, and it turns out, A, none of their planes got anywhere near Flight 93 because they were in a combat radius uh, over combat, air, air combat patrol, rather, over Washington. Yes. And uh, Rick Gibney, uh, that morning, um, Ed Jacoby, who was the then director of the New York State Emergency Management Office, uh, was out in Bozeman, Montana, for a, a meeting of emergency managers. He's the guy you need in New York because you've got an emergency going on, and he was, it was his job to coordinate the relief effort at Ground Zero. Ben, yep. hold tight. We're at the bottom of the hour. Good 
Bell. Call the Wildcard line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5, and dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Indeed so. My guest is Ben Chertoff. He's here explaining 9-11 from the point of view of a popular mechanics investigative article, a very serious one, who went to scientists and stress engineers and those kinds of people about the claims made by conspiracy theorists about what brought down those buildings. Once again, Ben Chertoff uh, from Popular Mechanics. Ben, the obvious thing to do would be to go to the lieutenant colonel and ask him if he shot down the plane, right? Exactly. Well? Exactly. So that's what we did, and, and, uh, and the answer was absolutely not. Nobody from the 119th got anywhere near Flight 93. Uh, what happened was, uh, he, Rick Gibney flew out, uh, to Bozeman, Montana, where Ed Jacoby was. He flew out in a modified two-seat F-16B, uh, landed out in Bozeman. They gave, uh, Mr. Jacoby a, a, a quick brush up on, on how to use the ejection seat, gave him a flight suit and a spare helmet. Uh, and after some, um, uh, about an hour of instruction, they both hopped in the, hopped in the F-16 and then flew cross country and landed in New York. Uh, so that he could come and run the uh, relief effort at the World Trade Center site. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he wasn't he wasn't anywhere near Flight ninety three. Um, okay. Um, look, we could go on and on and on and on, but we don't have the time. I want to discuss a little bit the, the people that are making these claims. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, in the course of doing this story, when it became known that you were doing this story. I'm sure, I mean, I read some 
some emails at the beginning of the program. Uh, just a little, little tiny sample of what's been sent to me. These these are really rabid folks, and um, they call names uh, very serious bad names. You know, like traitor. They use names like that. And I, I wonder if, in the course of this investigation, or even after the article came out, you have suffered the same sort of thing. I'll tell you, most of it uh, has been after the article came out. We're pretty overwhelmed by the response. In fact, before it, before it even hit the stands, we were getting um, only a couple of issues had gone out to subscribers. We were getting, and the Internet traffic was, was pretty intense. Uh, you know, they were debunking the popular mechanics story. And we also got, uh, at one point, I think it was uh, about an email a minute, and we've gotten well over uh, 500 um, probably closer to a thousand emails, and it's uh, you know, to everyone who did write an email. Uh, we are going to try to respond to them, um, but the problem is we just have so many. We're trying to work through them. How many of them were like the stuff that I was reading? I would say, um, in the initial blast of emails, and this is before the story was out, and I think this is before many people had actually read it. Um, most of them were, were were pretty negative and pretty mean, um, and the and the irony was a lot of them threw back the same stuff that we had just gone through and debunked. I mean, we yes. we get these emails from people who would say, "Well, you know, what about jet fuel? It doesn't burn hot enough to melt steel." And you you know you'd sit and kind of slap yourself. Didn't covered, hey. <laughs> yeah, and say, "Well, I guess you guys didn't read it yet." Oh. Um, so I you know some of it was a, was a knee jerk response. Others uh, were long in-depth letters saying well okay you guys answered these 16 claims well what about you know these 52 other other all right have there been any other significant uh claims made since the article that ought to be addressed um you know we're we were actually thinking of doing a follow-up to this because um a lot of these uh a lot a lot of the emails and letters and websites and responses said well you didn't address so and so and our, you know, the point of our article um, wasn't to retell the story of 9-11. It wasn't to tell the whole story at all. Right. The point was to take what we saw as the claims that were getting repeated the most and to put them up to what they wanted, which was serious, uh, you know, mainstream media attention and actually, you know, an actual investigation into it. So that's what we did. Um, you know, we... There are there are new claims coming in every day, and we are thinking of doing a follow-up. Where I'm not sure if we are going to uh, be able to do that. I think it'd be a lot of fun to do that uh, and look at some more. But I'll tell you, um, going through 16 of these and having all of them fall apart pretty quickly and turn out to be false, it sure. sort of says something about probably what the rest of them are going to be. Um, what about the vitriolic nature of these? So many of these people involved in this i mean it's just it's beyond the pale i mean what a lot of them are saying is just beyond the pale it's it's incredible to me i've never quite seen anything like it uh they're so wrapped up in this and i guess they believe that their own government really would do this to them i i think it's an amazing thing i really do and i'm not naive and i don't think our government's perfect and they've probably done some nasty stuff in the past but i mean on this scale hmm no, I don't think so, and it's it's very vitriolic. You have any thoughts on why it's so intense? You know, I, I don't know necessarily why it's so intense, and it is so angry. I mean, there's just this this massive hatred of yes of the government. And what I found fascinating, though, is that it was from not only um, you know that a lot of um, 
a lot of the we, we got picked up by a couple of blogs when this came out. Uh, Instapundit linked to us, and and um, a lot of the sort of right wing um, blogosphere, so to speak, um, made the point that this is the loony left, you know, that was that was making all these claims. And when you actually look at it and you see who's making them, uh, it is you know very loud on the on the sort of far far left 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 wing of the political spectrum, but also on the far right wing. Isn't and that interesting? It's it's wild, and there's this there's this point at which they sort of back each other up, and uh, you know they're, they're they have they have different um, they both have this agenda of, of of absolute hatred for either the government or the administration or all administrations in sort of any way uh, the way I feel or the way that, that we've kind of come to the conclusion that any any way to uh, badmouth this administration is okay because I think to a certain extent the mindset is. Well, the government lies to us, so it's okay to lie about them. Huh. And, um, you know, it, everyone has a right to be angry about 9-11. Um, I mean, it was, it was an absolutely tragic day, and there's no doubt um, that mistakes were made and that there's a lot of work to be done to, to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Everyone has a right to be mad about it, and everyone has a right to ask questions. But in so doing, everyone also has a responsibility to make uh, to have a respect for the truth and to make the right questions and to and to not uh, you know make this echo chamber of of you know what are sometimes misrepresentations and sometimes outright lies. I bet you got an awful lot of emails saying you had sold out, you were uh, part of the government uh, official line, and that's all you are is government mouthpiece, right? We have been claimed uh, we, we are we are on the Pentagon payroll. We're apparently uh, they they say that we're on the CIA payroll. Um, that uh, we are just a mouthpiece for the administration. And the thing was, our our story was very apolitical. I mean, we didn't look at this from from a political standpoint. We just went into the the actual physical claim, the hardware part of it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which is really our expertise. We don't we don't need or want to get into the politics behind it because that's not really what this is about. This was about is about the actual uh, physical evidence that uh, that a lot of these sites were were citing. Um, it's and what's also fascinating is uh, David Korn, who's a writer for the Nation. Um, I mean, amid amidst all this, uh, we had we had this great response from um, sort of centrist right wing of the political spectrum and the centrist left wing of the political spectrum. Um, David Korn, who writes for the Nation, has also apparently been called um, a CIA plant mm-hmm. by. Uh, some of the, the you know the 9/11 skeptics movement, and uh, and so he wrote a, a nice piece about um, uh, about how you know now popular mechanics and David Korn is uh, is represented as, as part of the CIA, and to a certain extent these theories are counterproductive for actually getting to the meat of what went wrong that day. Um, because they, they distract everyone's attention, and it's and it's this massive outpouring of energy, and it's and it's misdirected. Um, what was the craziest theory that you found out there? Oh, wow. There are plenty of them. The Bumble Planes one was one of the weirder ones, that the, the, the planes were, um, that the planes were switched and that there was this, uh, uh that one of them was, um, uh, see, all the planes landed in one spot and then they loaded all the passengers onto Flight 93 and shot it down. Another one was, uh, that, uh, the, the World Trade Center was emitting a radio beacon, and that uh, in downtown New York there were radio and power outages that morning, 
um, because of this radio beacon that was, uh, you know, homing in these planes. That there were no passengers aboard the planes at all. Homing um, in the planes. Planes were completely remote controlled, which, you know, it, it speaks to a certain naivete about how airplanes work, uh, to a certain extent, that, you know, people look and they say, well, Global Hawk, you know, the, the technology of Global Hawk, um, the, the unmanned drone, uh, it, you know, they, they can make a Global Hawk fly. Why couldn't they just slap that technology into, uh, you know, what looks like a, a Boeing 767? Uh, have no passengers on board at all and fly that in, uh, you know, fill it with explosives or, or what have you. Um, and, uh, I mean, it just, there are levels of, of inherent complicity uh, from, you know, everybody in the government. I mean, it, 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 to make these plans work, you'd have to have thousands and thousands of people in on it. Yeah, I'll say. And that's just, that, that's just ludicrous when you I, think I know. I know. Um, do you have any hope whatsoever? I mean, the, the article is now published. Do you think that in your lifetime or my lifetime or anybody who's listening right now, lifetime, that this will be, the facts will finally be accepted as the real way it happened? Or do you think this will go on forever, or at least until we wipe ourselves off the face of the globe? You know, I don't know. Um, that, that, that's a very good question. Um, to a certain extent, uh, the, the, it's getting louder. All this, um, all this, you know, ballyhoo about there being um, that there being an inside job here. But yes. I think, I think in the mainstream, when you talk to when you talk to people who actually were there, who have firsthand knowledge. I mean, that was our that was our strategy for reporting this was to get as close to firsthand knowledge as we possibly could. I mean, there's there's not even a second thought that that there's any possibility that these that these theories could be could be true, um, and so uh, you know I, I I think it would um, it would take a um, a much better effort and much better evidence and some real truth which just isn't there to to throw this really into the mainstream, uh, even though it is sort of trickling in there, um, you know it's it's. If, if you're going to, um, you know, it's, it's fine to be angry about this, but to continue to repeat things that are just plain wrong, that, that you ignore because of your own politics, you know, you're not really serving your own cause. And I think that's, um, I, I, I just can't see it continuing forever like that. Huh. Well, I, I, I wish I could agree with you, but looking at... Uh other things that perhaps are near this magnitude, assassinations and other things. Uh, oh, the moon. Are we yeah, saw that one's still there, isn't lots it? Lots of people who don't think we ever went to the moon. Let me go to the phones. I really do want to let the audience ask their questions. I, I think right. it's important, so let's do it. First time caller line, you're on the air with Ben Chertoff. Hi. Hello? Hi. You're on Hi, the air you with, with Ben Chertoff. Hi. Hi. I want to ask him the question. He alluded to uh, how all the people were supposedly crowd into the, the one plane and that their cell phone conversations were voiced over. I want to know the technical uh, complexity of that because these were not famous people. They were anonymous people and the time frame that it would take to be able to do that. Well, no, wait a minute. Uh, ben has not said that's what happened, sir. No, he didn't say it. He had just talked about one of, the, one of the crazy theories out there. That's one of them. Right. And I was just wondering how, how you know, technically, from a technical standpoint of view, would it be to get somebody's voice on a cell phone and then splice together a conversation with their loved ones to convince their loved ones that this was the actual person. Sir, is that what you believe happened? No, I don't. You, you don't. So you I think just want, to, want him to debunk that theory by I saying... See. I see. All right. Mm -hmm. Ben? 
Well, I'll tell you, we didn't look into that. Um, it's, it's, I, I actually haven't really heard that one specifically, um, but um, I, I imagine it would be, it would take a a lot of people to do that, and b you'd have to get, you'd have to somehow get the recordings beforehand, mm-hmm. uh, so that you have some sort of baseline comparison, and then um, uh, you know to, to get that done that day, transmitted. As it's going on, because of course these calls happen real time, um, would would take a, a pretty Herculean effort, and and it's it's almost impossible. Yeah. I mean, you can do a pretty good job of, of of splicing together somebody's voice and making a conversation, but you can always tell when it's faked, and especially a loved one. I mean, right. that that would be really tough. Right. All right, sir. That's it. Thank you for having the show. Yeah, you're very welcome. West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Ben Chirdoff. Hi. Hey, how are you gentlemen doing? All right, sir. Welcome. Uh, Mark from uh, Henderson, Nevada. Yes, Mark. Uh, uh, I read the piece that uh, Mr. Chirdoff uh, wrote, and I want to say I didn't really see any empirical evidence uh, that would disprove that that the government was complicit in 9-11. And one thing about the methodology that I noticed is it's like you take these particular theories that people have, take, for example, the, the no-planes theory at the Pentagon, and try to deconstruct that. And the fact of the matter is you can prove that, that a plane flew into the Pentagon, but that still does not disprove that the government was complicit in 9-11. That's right. Uh, uh, you're absolutely right. It doesn't. All right, but you do acknowledge, unlike most, that a plane did fly into it? Uh, I don't know. Uh, oh, I don't know. Well, then what about the, the pieces of the plane, the burning bodies, the whole thing, uh, well, the eyewitnesses? What about all that? Uh, to be honest, I mean, you, you look at the, the, the record of this government, uh, I don't think we can believe anything. You're not answering my us. question. Uh, don't talk about the record of the government. Talk about the pieces of the plane, sir, the, you know, eyewitnesses and the burning bodies and all that, eyewitnesses to all of that. I, I haven't seen any of that. This is the most surveilled corridor in the world, and all they have is a little Logitech webcam shot of the Pentagon. Why don't Why don't they show us the video footage? Uh, I'm sure they would have uh, some sort of video footage. All right, Ben, that's a good question. Why Why uh, there has been some sort of refusal? Is there video footage that exists that's being held from us? Well, I'll tell you, we didn't investigate that completely. Uh, in fact, we didn't we didn't uh, really work on that at all. We might think about doing that in a follow-up article, and it's certainly something we'll... Uh, okay, so that would be on the list. Yeah, okay. probably it would be, because that one seems to be out there quite a bit. I'll tell you, a, a lot of the information about what hit the Pentagon, in fact, all of this stuff, um, because it's a criminal investigation, and this is standard procedure with just about any time there's a criminal action uh, in terms of a transportation accident, the FBI takes over. And the FBI, and, and having dealt with other cases and in completely separate incidents um, reporting uh, during a criminal investigation, they are very reluctant mm-hmm. to release anything because mm-hmm. this is their case, and they want to be able to go to the prosecute, go and prosecute, and have a clean case. They don't want the media attention that's going to, you know, the sort of uh, the, the, the media making their own conclusions and people making their own conclusions themselves after reading the media. So it's very tough, and, and the, the government has been criticized quite a bit for not releasing enough information. This was a very big incident. Um, I think that might be, I, you know, personally, I think it would be nice if we could get these, uh, if there is video, if we could see it. But uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, that's pretty much standard operating procedure, and 
beyond that, there is uh, th- there's just mountains of evidence to prove that a uh, a plane did hit the Pentagon, and there's very little, uh, in fact, nothing that I've seen uh, to say anything to the contrary. I mean, in terms of empirical evidence. Do you feel that these 9/11 conspiratorial people might be able to make finally enough noise that the government would politically be forced, would have their hand forced, uh, into releasing some of what they have not yet? Uh, maybe. Um, you know, I think they'd have to, uh, to, convince, uh, to convince a lot of the, the, the sort of um, less uh, prone to believing uh, these conspiracy theories. They'd have to come up with a lot more um, and, and probably better arguments, uh, since a lot of these really do fall through. But I don't think, um, I, I, I don't think necessarily um, uh, we will even need to, because in all likelihood, these trials are probably going to be over, uh, you know, in the next couple of years, and this stuff will come out in the process of doing that. What about uh, those who say that uh, there weren't any hijackers on the planes, and they feel there's evidence indicating they weren't even there and that they're still out there alive somewhere today. You've heard that? Yeah. You know, we also didn't look into that too much because that just seems so implausible from the from the very start. Um, that came out. Uh, there was a BBC report that came out soon thereafter. And, and the BBC report, of course, didn't say that they were alive. It said that, that people had reported. Yeah, but somehow it's become that. Uh, yeah, and it's sort of the echo chamber. Of this, that, I, you am, know, I know. I you know. You know, Ben, hold on. We're, we're right, here thanks. at the top of the hour. We'll be right back. Ben Chertoff is my guest from the high desert in the middle of the night. I'm Art Bell. Take a ride? To talk with Art Bell, call the wildcard line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies, call toll-free 800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, call 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5, and dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. It is. Uh, ben Chirtoff is here from Popular Mechanics Magazine, which did an in-depth 
examination of 16 of the most prevalent claims of the conspiracy people about 9-11, the inside job people, and dealt with them scientifically. I'm not sure it matters to a lot of people, but they did. You can either read the article um, yourself or look into it yourself, but there's been a very great deal of research uh, done. Now, that may not matter to a lot of people like... Frank in Tampa, Florida, whose message I'll have for you in a moment. We're just never going to get to it all, but Ben, there were some claims made, I think it was on the uh, Alex Jones site, uh, that uh, showed a a seismic uh, uh, print of what he claimed uh, would show explosives were going off in the buildings, right? And I think that... uh, you put up the entire graph, which proved that that was not the case. Is that correct? Yeah, that was that was that was one of my favorite ones. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, it was. Yeah, you just it, it's it's the kind of thing where you when you actually talk to people who who made uh, these seismic observations and actually look into what it means, you see that um, the graph that is repeated over and over again on these sites is this very compressed, very long in terms of time frame graphs. So you've got one line that equals a half an hour. And so it looks like there's this massive spike. And I guess the um, what what one of the theories that, that, that pulls out of that is that um, there was this massive expenditure of energy and ground shaking before the towers collapsed, which uh, supposedly bolsters the idea that there were explosives. Explosives, yeah. So um, actually some... Uh, in fact, it was, I, I believe, uh, Christopher Boland, who was the uh, same gentleman who had... Um, that article. Uh, yeah, spent some time calling my mother. Um, is uh, He had also called uh, the Lamont Darty uh, Earth Observatory, uh, who had recorded this stuff. So we went back to Lamont Darty, and uh, we found out that the interpretations that have been repeated um, throughout uh, the conspiracy sites uh, were actually categorically wrong, that the when you look at the graph spread out over a smaller time period so you can actually see what's going on. We look at it magnified under uh, you know, one minute or 30 seconds, for instance, as we show, um, you can see that there are no large spikes at the beginning and that, in fact, the, the, the bulk of the energy uh, is transmitted uh, when it should be from what we saw on television, uh, when the debris actually hit the ground. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, the, uh, the very... Energy waves that the Palisades uh, Observatory recorded um, are exactly what you wouldn't see if there were explosives. Uh, that explosives actually have a completely different um, seismic print when they go off. Well, shouldn't these people like Alex have to respond to this now? You would think, um, and that's you know, as as journalists, um, you know, it's kind of our job to report what we see. But I think. A lot of these sites come in to the um, uh, come into the reporting of this stuff, and those who actually do go through um, at least some legwork of picking up a phone, which seems to be pretty rare. Um, they come into it and they ask their questions with their minds already made up, and mm. it's a lot of picking and choosing um, what sort of evidence you're going to put up, ignoring. Uh, a massive ocean of evidence to the contrary. Well, that's why I asked you about how long this is going to go on, I think, forever. Frank in Tampa says, what liars you both are. Shame on you. Uh, as you're, you're both agents for the murders. Agents for the murders, he calls us. 
You have lost your credibility, Art, and your guest doesn't have any. Liars. That's just what you are. Liars, 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 liars. Nine times he says liars, and that's the, that's the message. These minds, if you wish to call them that, are not going to change. It's, it's amazing, though, the, the liar argument. I mean, are, are they calling everyone we spoke to liars? I guess. We couldn't, we couldn't find one person who gave any of these theories any thought whatsoever. I mean, it's just categorically the opposite. I mean, are they all liars? <laughs> First time caller line, you're on the air with Ben Chertoff. Hello. Hi, Art. Um, I was just, um, actually, I, I just sent you an email in regard to uh, pict uh, two pictures uh, from United Airlines. Um, they, they, these pictures, I'm a pilot, by the way. I've been flying for 11 years, and I've taken these pictures at uh, about 38,000 feet, and these aircraft passed over me about 1,000 feet above me. And I snapped two pictures. Uh, actually, I snapped a few more, but just to kind of get the picture and uh, show you what it looks like, the, the two uh, stripes. That that people claim that they were missiles and these aircrafts were carrying missiles. I mean, it clearly shows that they were not missiles. Uh, you know, you, you could clearly see the paint themes on on these aircraft. Um, United always paints their aircraft like that, and the reason to that is because underneath the aircraft, they ha we have usually antennas that are VHF and UHF, and I'm sure you're aware of that. Um, and those antennas cannot be painted. Caller, why do you think uh, these people want us to believe there were humps and bumps and bombs and missiles when the real story fits? You know, it's an interesting world, and you know what? I'll tell you this. This is the only country where you could believe in things like that. If it was in a different country, believe me, and especially in the Middle East, you wouldn't be able to speak your mind like this. But this is what makes this country so great, is that there is, you know, freedom of speech. Well, you're right and, about that. And, and, and I don't, I, I mean, I laugh at these stories. It's just such a joke. You know, you see all these conspiracies. Another thing, another reason to that, is, I mean, I see some of these websites. Obviously, you know, and, and people have written books about these. It's just, it's all about money. People are making money out of this. Well, and, there is that. People are selling books, magazines, and uh, to be fair... Popular mechanics in this case, uh, but but there are there's profiteering going on over this, isn't there, Ben? I, I believe there is, and, and certainly Thierry Maison made. Uh, uh, I'm sure. I, I don't know uh, offhand, but I'm sure he made quite a bit selling that book uh, in France, and their DVDs being sold, and uh, and and there is to a certain extent a, a business going on. But um, but I, I I think your your caller really makes a a really good point about the our investigation. Especially, um, you have on these conspiracy sites all these sort of armchair pilots who overnight, uh, you know, learn everything they possibly can about an airplane uh, from the World Wide Web, which of course is is unreliable at best. And then, um, but when you actually talk to the people who fly these planes, you actually talk to the people who build these buildings. Right. I mean, it's just it's just categorically false. All these theories, and they and they just don't give it any thought. And it really speaks to um, sort of the level of of, um, I mean, I, you know, to a certain extent, it's just like these naive views about how the planes and the government works. A lot of this is polit politically motivated, isn't it? In other words, a lot of the people getting behind this are Bush haters. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Um, there is uh, sort of a, a, a feeling of it doesn't matter whether what I say is true as long as it's bad for the administration or bad for the government in general. I mean, I think some of this goes beyond just Bush. You know, that, 
is okay, and 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 it's. I think it's one of the reasons you see uh, people repeating claims that are just patently untrue is because um, there's a political motivation behind it as opposed to a motivation to actually learn the truth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we certainly found that very quickly. Um, Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Ben Chertoff. Hi. Yes, hi. Oh, um, you don't, you're going to have to yell at us, huh? Oh, I'm sorry. My son was at the military base here in Florida when they got a call from the pre- or actually from the White House. Uh, the, that plane in Pennsylvania, they had an order to shoot it down, but I think it went down before they could do this because he was right on the phone with me, and I immediately called Fox News. Well, I sure wouldn't doubt that, man. That, that actually. That is the truth. There was an order out there, and they were yeah. setting up a, a combat radius. And there's something here, too, about you. Um, you, know, you were talking about your uh, connection with Michael Shirtoff. Yeah. This came from the mailbag, and it said the shirt part of his name means devil. My Russian dictionary also adds spirit of evil to the definition. This man's name means of the devil shirt, devil, uh, O-F-F, of the and I just, uh, somebody just sent me this uh, yesterday. Did you hear that, Ben, of Chitov, of that's, the devil? That's very funny. My that's dad a Russian is, dictionary. My, my dad has <laughs> oh, said that, too. Funny. Apparently there are a couple of different interpretations of it, because the, because as a Russian word, it's not, um, uh, there's some sort of grammatical problem with it as a word. So there's all sorts of different theories in my family about how the name came about, whether it actually means little devil or not. But it's... <laughs> You know, you want to build a conspiracy out of that, you're, you know. Welcome to Welcome it. To yeah. it. Uh, East of the Rockies, uh, you're on there with Ben Chirdoff. Hi. Uh, hi, I really feel privileged to be able to speak on the radio tonight. Um, I want to ask about the PBS documentary uh, that was shown on 911 in plain sight, where Mr. Silverstein, who is the owner of the Twin Towers, said that he had uh, on building number seven pulled, which is parlance for set with charges and explosives and demolished, on the very day of 9-11, less than eight hours after the attacks occurred. Now, doesn't it take days or even weeks to set charges? So that would, that would say to me that this has been planned for, you know, for a long time in advance. Ben? Well, actually, uh, to set up a controlled demolition, um, it, it can take, especially for buildings that size, it takes years sometimes. Then they have to pull out all the support structures inside. They essentially clean out the office. Uh, you got to run wiring over the entire thing. You can't do it wirelessly for uh, because there's just too many signals to these charges. But uh, I'm I'm glad somebody brought up the Larry Silverstein comment because uh, we certainly looked at that, and that's a pretty simple one. Uh, what if you watch the documentary again? Uh, what he says is uh, they decided to pull, which is referring to the fire department, and of course. Uh, in some uh, circles of, of the controlled demolition industry, pull is used to mean uh, that, that you actually demolish a building. Mm-hmm. But, of course, talk to any firefighter. Walk down the block, talk to a firefighter, ask them what it means when you're in a building and you pull. There are two things, and we did this, of course. There are two things pull mean to a firefighter. It means you can pull hoses out of a truck, mm-hmm. or it means you evacuate a building mm-hmm. because it's probably going to collapse because it's dangerous. So when they made the decision to pull, they literally made the decision to leave the building, which they did. So they were saying, get out, she's not structurally stable, and they're going to go. Exactly, exactly. So that's, that's what, what they meant by pull. Yeah, I mean, it's a very simple explanation, and it's, and it's the one that's true. All right, Ben, there were a number of statements made by structural engineers and some others that were 
misused by the conspiracy folks, weren't there, to the point absolutely. where some of these people felt like they've had their lives ruined? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and we, uh, when I think what you're talking about specifically, and this is the one that made it into press, and this certainly wasn't the only instance we found of this, right. was uh, a man named Van Romero, who uh, works out in uh, New, at the New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology. He was interviewed by the Albuquerque Journal. Uh, I believe it was on 9-11 itself. He was interviewed. Uh, and he had. Uh, it was printed that he said, uh, quote, uh, there were some explosive devices uh, inside the buildings that caused its collapse. Um, and that he said that... Uh, Essentially, that the collapse of the structures resembled those of controlled implosions. Uh, resembled those of controlled exactly yes. old structures. Um, well, soon we we talked to Van Romero at length, and uh, he mentioned to us that, that soon after that hit the sands, he realized that that wasn't exactly what he said. And what he had said that day, and this is just from watching it on television, he wasn't there. Uh, he was he was halfway across the country. What he said was, it looked like controlled demolition. Which is exactly what you told me earlier in the program about the, the puffs of dust, right? Exactly. I mean, you can look at that and say, well, yeah, it kind of looks like explosions. Of course, um, they're a lot bigger than what you would see in a controlled demolition because you want the uh, you actually want the explosive force going into the building and not out the windows. Um, but uh, what, what, you, what happened with Van Romero is he called up the paper and he asked for a retraction, and he got one. Uh, it was printed... Uh, I believe it was a, a week or two later. Of course, many of the sites just put the initial article up. Not the retraction. They don't print the retraction. That's and normal. Some. This is what was even more fascinating, and uh, and and Mr. Romero went into this with us. Uh, some sites actually claimed that um, he had been gotten to uh, the powers that be. Had, Got to him. Yeah, exactly, and told him to change his story. But of course, he said to us, you know, he has no doubt. Absolutely, no doubt that uh, the fire that, that the uh, Trade Center and World Trade Center Seven fell uh, because of um, sort of the mainstream view that uh, it was damaged from the planes and from the fires. Uh, and he, he absolutely doesn't think for a second that there were any controlled uh, shaped charges in the buildings. All right, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Ben Chertoff. Hi. Yeah, hi guys. Uh, great show. Uh, I'm just wondering, uh, how do you get in a plane, a full-size airliner, to go through a 16-foot hole in a Pentagon? Without clipping a wing or dragging an engine into the the surrounding uh, lawns or knocking over lampstanders on the highway, it seems that the plane evaporated and there were no wing damage or tail segments or or luggage or seating or anything visible, including on that website Let's Roll Nine One One dot org. It's very very informative. I was just wondering what you had to say about that. That the well, first of all, the sixteen-foot hole that's, that's quoted all over, and it was also quoted in Pierre Mason. Yeah, before the roof collapsed. Right. Um, the, well, the, the only sixteen-foot hole was on uh, Ring C, and that was an exit hole from the landing gear, uh, according to Meta Sozen, who was, uh, had, had studied this with uh, with ASCII, who did the building performance report. And there was the the problem, and I think the reason why there uh, why this speculation was kind of able to run out of control like it has, is because there aren't that many pictures available before. How do you get level that wings, picture? that level, that close to the ground, without dragging a cowling or an engine or a portion of that aircraft right through that whole lawn section? And well, there were. And they, leaving I mean, they, fuel burning. There's no fuel burns on that lawn except for about the first 
25 feet from the building. Right. Well, you have to realize that this stuff is moving at 580 miles an hour. Yeah, but it's compressing against the wall of the building. Right. So what happens is it goes into the building, and they've done computer simulations of this at length, and you can see exactly where the fuel goes. It enters the building in a liquid state. There were skid and burn marks on the lawn. And, um, you know, by the time, unfortunately, by the time most of the pictures were out, it, the section of the Pentagon in question had already collapsed. Uh, but, J- Jamie McIntyre for CNN was right there live stating there was no significant wreckage of any sizable aircraft. Right, there wasn't, which is, which is How's that? what you would expect when a plane is very thin aluminum and the thing was going extremely quickly and it's hitting reinforced concrete. The energy involved is enormous. What about the lamp standards given the altitude of the structure, the first floor being the major impact site, the lamp standards on the highway not more than, say, 40 yards from the building? How do you get a, a plane to do a left turn nose in into a building? Without uh, I, you know, to be perfectly honest, we didn't deal with the lamp stands. That's something that we might look at. seems like that's the article. way you're doing the whole show here. You're not dealing with a lot of connecting dots here. Well, uh, our purpose in doing this, and uh, I think I've said this before, but our purpose was not to tell the complete story. And what we did was we took what was repeated often. The lampstand one I've seen now since, but it's, it's not one that's, uh, that's, that's repeated very often. And I'll tell you that the highway is actually um, uh, many hundreds of yards away from the Pentagon. And when the plane, uh, you know, when the plane flew in, it didn't just hit the first story, of course. It hit the first, second, and I believe part of the third story. Uh, and that was all documented uh, from evidence that they recovered uh, soon thereafter. So that's another one that, if you were to do a follow-up, might be worthy of exploration? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, unfortunately, I don't have in front of me what the flight path of the plane was, so I can't say. Is it belief that it hit about 25 feet uh, in front of the impact of the building? Is that about where it hit? Uh, yeah, part of the plane, part of the fuselage, and part of the wing. And, of course... When you've got a piece of very fragile aluminum moving at that speed, like an airplane, it breaks up. I mean, it literally shreds. Uh, and you see this in many other plane crashes. I mean, it's not just the plane crash at the Pentagon. Uh, I mean, remember Value Jet that went down in Florida? I mean, that, yes. there's almost nothing left. And think of Flight 93 in Shanksville. I mean, there's a perfect example. The thing buried itself. Uh, you know, over 30 feet underground, and all that was left, and there was a massive explosion when it hit, uh, when it hit the ground, were these tiny scraps of metal, because the energy involved is enormous. I mean, it's many tons. It's equal to uh, the energy of a plane hitting something solid is equal to many tons of TNT. And it's something that, I mean, I think there's a very Hollywood interpretation of what a plane crash is going to look like, because it's not something that we see every day, thank mm-hmm. God. Thank God, indeed. All right, we are at the bottom of the hour, Ben, so hold tight. We've got another 30 minutes to go. Ben Chertoff is my guest from Popular Mechanics magazine, which took 16 of the most popular, prominent, uh, conspiratorial views and went to the scientists and the structural engineers and checked them out. And they simply didn't check out. From the high desert, I'm Art Bell.
talk with Art Bell, call the Wildcard line at area code 775-727-1295. The first-time caller line is area code 775-727-1222. To talk with Art Bell from East of the Rockies, call toll-free at 800-825-5033. From West of the Rockies, call Art at 800-618-8255. International callers may reach Art Bell by calling your in-country Sprint Access number, pressing option 5, and dialing toll-free 800-893-0903. From coast to coast and worldwide on the Internet, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. It is indeed. Uh, Good morning, everybody. From Popular Mechanics, Ben Chertoff is here, and we'll get to as many of you as we can. Stand by. God. Ben, I think that somebody calling himself Big Wave Dave from Portland, Maine, has come up with one that's going to put you right back where you belong. Great. Uh, He says, Art, conspiracy proven. Under Windows 95 Word program, set font to Windings, plug in QNY22, the tale of Flight 11, and see what symbols you see. This program was made in 1995. Have you seen that? I have. Ah. I, I love those. I mean, that's like one of the ones that came out right afterwards. I mean, I know. I mean, there's no obviously there's no conspiracy there, but um, it's 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 really funny. And of course, that doesn't work if you actually try it. I, I don't think it works. I haven't tried it. Well, then there's somebody else here who says, "Look, uh, great program, but sorry, I like conspiracies too much." Maybe there's some truth in that. You know. Well, you know, I I love reading around this stuff, and but but I mean, this is nine eleven stuff. Yeah, this is nine eleven. This isn't fun. And yeah, and and these are I mean, these are these are not your normal conspiracy. I mean, there's this is just too much, and there's too much evidence to the contrary to really uh, make these work. Oh, that's right. Uh, for, first time caller line, your turn with Ben Chertoff. Hello. Hi there, Art. Um, I, uh, I'm a first-time caller. Uh, I've been listening to you for, I don't know, probably going on like nine years now. Okay. So I was compelled to call tonight because I really have to take issue with your guest and how he accuses others of sloppy journalism. Okay. When, uh, <clears throat> all, all right, right well. Be specific. Um, well, first of all, the, the NTSB, uh, according to them, none of the four crashes were given a normal investigation. Jurisdiction was handed over to the FBI. So when he says the NTSB didn't find anything, he's not lying, but he's, you know, saying a mistruth. And that's what a lot of what I noticed with your guest is a lot of it. He's not lying. He's not directly uh, doing anything wrong. He's just brushing off and skipping over a lot, a lot of things. I all mean, right, so why were there only... The, all right, hold it, hold it. Let's get this straight. You're saying the NTSB was bypassed and the FBI took over the investigation, so of course the NTSB didn't find anything. Is that what you just said? Well, the, supposedly, normally when that happens, and that's never happened, but normally when that happens, if jurisdiction is needed to be given over to the FBI, then the, then the NTSB is still supposed to be involved, and they weren't involved. Okay, Ben? So that's why they didn't find it. Well, hold, hold on now, Ben. Well, first of all, I, I'm not exactly sure where you're referring to uh, our NTSB findings. I mean, there's probably over 
in the Flight 93 stuff, and they were on scene for quite a while going through the wreckage. Yes. Uh, and it is standard operating procedure when there is a criminal act having to do with our transportation system that the FBI will claim uh, jurisdiction over that and will control it. I mean, they will work with the NTSB, but the FBI is uh, in control. Now, we were able to talk to uh, the NTS, some of the NTSB guys who were on scene and able to tell us what they found there. But, uh, I mean, I don't know if you remember the... Uh, the train crash this is a great example out. Um, um, well, it's a tragic example, but it's also uh, a good example. Out in California, um, a couple of months ago, the guy who had driven his car... Of course. On, yeah, onto the train tracks uh, to commit suicide and then had second thoughts. Yes. Uh, that investigation was immediately handed over to the FBI because it was a criminal investigation. Uh, and, I mean, that's just how it works. Um, and... Uh, you know, there's there's nothing fishy going on, but unfortunately, uh, for people who are who are convinced that that there's something not true out there and and require all the evidence, and I and I really think for some of these diehard conspiracy theories, it doesn't matter how much evidence uh, you show them. That's kind of what I've been telling you all night. Really, yeah, in, I mean, in a lot of ways. The conspiracy is still going to be there, but you know the FBI just doesn't release everything right away, and you have to wait till the trial's over for it to happen. I mean, even the NTSB is like that, um, and I worked with them on, on a number of different stories. It takes it takes a while for them to come out and say exactly what they found because they're still conducting their investigation. All right, Wildcard Line, you're on the air with uh, Ben Chertoff. Hi. Yes. Hi, Art. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Kudos to your guest and Art. Thank you for bringing some intellectual sensibility back to the airwaves. I I am so happy to hear your guest tonight. I have, I listen to the talk radio a lot from one end of the dial to the other, and it doesn't take long for a person to realize that your guest is totally right when it comes to the extreme left and the extreme right coming at this conspiracy theory. Let me tell you. <clears throat> This is my opinion, Art, and I don't mean to personally put anybody down, but I have to say that where, where Alex Jones is coming from, it, to me, is an anti-Semitic uh, viewpoint. The conspiracy theorists, it doesn't take you long to listen to their rhetoric, that they blame the Jews for every world problem that's wrong in this world. And when you've got people like that, it's just, it's, in my opinion, it's horrible. And from the extreme left... You've got Michael Moore sitting in the DNC uh, convention in the guest of honor box next to Jimmy Carter spewing the same rhetoric, and unfortunately now Howard Dean at the head of the DNC. Art, these are both both groups that hate Bush. One hates the government. One has the likeness, of, in my opinion, of the Matthew Hales of this world, and the other ones I would be embarrassed if I was a Democrat. And all I can say is kudos. I have watched every kind of... Thing that you can watch on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel, the plane that went into the Pentagon, banked to the left, lost his left wing, going 500 miles an hour. Right. It doesn't take a stupid person to understand, or a smart person to understand, that that thing went in like a bullet. And where in the H-E-double-L is, is Barbara Olson? Is she just floating out there somewhere? I mean, these people are crazy, Art. I, Thank okay. you. Thank you again. Thank you, and uh, Thank have, you. have a good night. Um, east of the Rockies, you're on the air with Ben Chiroff. Hello. Hello, Art. Hi. Hello, Ben. This is Travis from Richmond, Kentucky. And um, 
I, I agree with you 100% on talking about the, the planes, um, how they hit the World Towers and, and the Pentagon. I don't think that's really an important issue from the standpoint of what, what is the crime. Well, it's only important, sir, because so many of these conspiracy guys are saying it didn't happen. Well, I know, but I, I, you know, I, I, I have some other questions that that aren't answered by, by either side of that. That's fine. That's fine. Go ahead. Okay. Um, my, my angle is, is starts with the, uh, uh, before 9-11 knowledge, who had knowledge and so on and so forth. Um, we'll start with Willie Brown. Mayor of San Francisco got a phone call the day before. I heard him say that at the pulpit, uh, University Cathedral in Los Angeles with Dr. Gene Scott in November of, uh, 2003. Dr. Scott, uh, rest his soul. Now, it, w- this phone call said what? What? That all this was going to happen? A, Willie Brown got a phone call that said, don't fly to New York. Don't fly to New York. Right. Okay. And uh, and now I've read some other articles that said that there were uh, uh, a couple of officials that uh, canceled their flights also on the 10th. Um, the attorney general began flying uh, non-commercial um, several weeks before 9-11. All right, let's deal with all of that. Uh, were there any important evidences that you uncovered anywhere along the line uh, ben, that uh, people had warning that this was going to happen, indicating a prior knowledge. Well, I'll tell you, this is this is, this is outside of the scope of what we worked on um, uh, specifically on this article. But uh, I, I mean, I think you'll see, especially, and I think the story of September 11th will probably be one, at least in the government, in the lead up to it, as a, you know, a total breakdown in security. And it and it does look like there were certainly. Uh, there were certainly the clues there uh, from what I've read, and this is, this is not speaking to the story we did or our investigation because this is really quite far outside of that, uh, that scope. We really stuck to the physical claims. But, um, I, you know, I, I, I think what we've seen in um, you know, both the 9-11 report and uh, what's come out in the papers and the news and uh, you know, the, the sort of Richard Clark reports is that uh, there were uh, at, at least the clues there and the warnings, and I think um, I think what you take away from it is that uh, before September 11th, there was a major communication breakdown in the federal government. Um, now, whether people ha- actually had foreknowledge that it was going to happen on that day, I can't say yes or no because I haven't. I remember some stories immediately, almost immediately after the event, uh, indicating that there had been some stocks dumped. There was a big dump that went on, and that story was short-lived, really. It, it sort of went away. you have anything on that at all? Yeah, you know, we didn't really investigate that at, in, in depth at all, but I, we, did, we did, I mean, it's certainly something that we came across, and that's been coming in in emails quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the story there is that there were uh, put options put on American Airlines and United Airlines stock before 9-11, uh, the idea being that somebody profited from it, therefore somebody had to know, and and it, uh, I think the, the story uh, puts it in the Chicago issue. I, I'm not exactly sure um, the, the specifics of, of the story, but... I bet the SEC has looked into it. Yeah, what, what I do know is that it was investigated, and it turns out that the put options were not just American Airlines and United Airlines, as, these, uh, as the conspiracy sites say. Oh. It, was, it, was, it 
it was, I think, five or six different airlines. Because uh, if you go back to early September of 2001, uh, the airlines were not in good shape to begin with. And there was uh, a lot of talk that there was going to be a, a, a pretty big downturn in the aviation stock. But there was some, uh, one of these investor newsletters came out and said, you know, aviation is just, you know, going bad, period. Uh, it, it had, this is trending for, for months. I mean, this goes back months of trends. So a bunch of people, uh, dumped the stock. And then there was, there was an actual flurry of trading, I believe, on these two airlines. But from what I've read, and this is, again, outside of the scope of, of what we did, that was all pretty solidly debunked um, well before we got into this because the trading okay. happened overseas. And, um, you know, theoretically, the Bin Laden family does have quite a bit of money, and who knows who was making those trades. But it wasn't in the U.S. All right. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with... Uh, ben Chudoff, hello. Good morning, Art. Good morning. Hey, kudos. What a wonderful job. Thanks for bringing this fine man on your program. You're very welcome. And I want to I thank you, Ben, for reminding... I'm a former Marine Corps veteran, uh, Gulf War veteran, and I want to thank you for reminding us that my brothers and our American families didn't go over there just to fight over oil. And uh, for all you callers out there, please give these men... Uh, some respect here. If you can't contain your composure, pick something else up other than a phone. Now, saying that, Art, you posed an interesting question. You, you, you know, we want to find out why do people want to believe like this? Why do we have conspiracy theorists? <laughs> and why don't they want to trust our government? Now, you yourself... Well, I'm not sure that everybody should trust the government. We, we yes, should keep yes. a very, uh, you know... Yes. People uh, in in our business should be keeping an eye on the government, but that doesn't yeah. mean that everything that the government does is a right. conspiracy against the people. Exactly, and and but that is a question that does need to be addressed. You know, as far as you know that part of the process, why people are like this, and you yourself uh, had a uh, remarkable experience uh, seeing some kind of a triangle craft. Yes. You know, and uh, we have the agenda, that, uh, the UFO agenda, of course, and uh, our government's not talking about. And uh, we have the agenda of the chemtrails, our government. All right. Well, these are all di different. So I can understand why we have this kind of a situation here. And uh, the freedom of mobility, I think, uh, is, you know, the, the heart of the UFO matter because of the propulsion system. All right, that's I mean, another show, oh, sir. I appreciate show. I appreciate but, your call. Thank you very much. But uh, I'm going to keep tr trying to keep on track here. Um, you're on the air, coast to coast AM with Ben Chertoff. Hello. Hello, is this me? It, well, Dick, I'm one Dick, of the conspiracy. Dick, 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 Dick. Yes, Dick. I had to cut that out. We not we don't allow last names. Oh, I beg your pardon. So your name is Dick. We'll start over so we get it in. Your name is Dick, and I'm one of the conspiracy theorists who okay. was one of the very first ones who came out when the uh, when the security camera video at the Pentagon was released, and uh, that convinced me. It was a, a completely data-driven, my conclusions, and I put the uh, got the photographs out and put them on the Internet. And I just wanted to say that the uh, Popular Mechanics article didn't address it at all. Yet I believe it is one of the most popular, uh, one of the most persuasive of the uh, arguments. Basically, it's uh, two things. The security camera video that was released uh, shows... A smaller plane 
it also shows a very thick, creamy cloud of uh, trail of uh, we, which is, we presume is a missile because it's too thick for contrail uh, heading toward the Pentagon. So you think it was a missile, not an airplane? I believe. Uh, well, my the scenario that I I have, and Professor A. K. Dudney of uh, who, an editor of Scientific American, uh, we, we we the view is that. The Pentagon, the the, nine, the 757 was there, and it flew over the Pentagon and landed at Reagan National Airport, only one mile away wow. uh, beyond. The killer jet was an F-16 or some other fighter jet that is smaller and differently proportioned, and that's ba- and that is based not on speculation, but uh, the proportions are based on the security camera video. Okay, that's, Ben. That's based on the. On the on the on the on the five frames of video that that you see in still repeated all over again. Uh, uh, there's there's one frame where you can see uh, the plane. I mean, you're basing it on that one still, correct? Yes. Um, I'll tell you uh, what you have in there. Uh, of course, the nature of security cameras like that uh, to save data and to save. Um, Space on whatever recording uh, device they're using. It's not a full motion video, so you've got, um, you know, I don't know how many frames per second that was, but it's you know less than fewer than 30 frames a second, uh, probably closer to 10 or maybe even fewer than that. So you have this one shot of a blurred, uh, completely because of course it's not a fast shutter, so you've got this you've got this blur on the screen. You mm-hmm. can barely see what it is, whether it's a plane, whether it's a 757, whether it's an F-16. Um, I, I think there is, is by far enough empirical evidence to say that that is, uh, in fact, a 767. Um, well, besides, it wasn't F-16 parts in pieces yeah. or a missile from an F-16. Or, or a black box for an F, from an F-16. None of that was true. Exactly. I, I mean, you may wish to believe these things, folks, but please, the facts are the facts, and, you know, they're pretty well documented in this article I've is there any other good reading that you would uh, recommend to people who are uh, the few out there that might be teetering or tottering one way or the other and haven't made up their minds? To go beyond this? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, people, you know, there, there's a lot of bad-mouthing about the 9-11 Commission report, and I certainly, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say that um, everything came out there as clearly as it could have. I mean, I think... They did a pretty Herculean task. It was certainly it was an independent commission. Uh, go through the footnotes in the 9/11 Commission report. I mean, if you're really serious about this, because you see what they saw, and and you get you get pointed to the actual source material. People fault the uh, the report for not having enough evidence. Well, it's all there. It's just in a, in about 60 pages of footnotes in the back. And uh, you know, we certainly did our share of that. Um, among uh, all the other reporting we had, but there's a lot of stuff in there, and it's you know it's overwhelming the amount of evidence that there is um, for uh, the events played out the way most people really saw them played out. Okay, Ben, this is a part of the show here where I have to ask now if you want to give out your home number. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, buddy, thank you for being on the program. Thank you. And um, I I doubt that we changed any seriously made up minds, but I appreciate your bringing the, the sanity and the and the facts to the program and taking the time to stay up late to do it on, on top of that. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. I hope everyone uh, you know if you if you have any questions, go out and pick up Popular Mechanics. It's still 
on the newsstand now, and please give it a read. Good night, my friend. Thank you. Good night. Take care. See you all tomorrow night. Crystal, as always, with the right words to carry us out of here. From the high desert, the green high desert, good night. Midnight in the desert, shooting stars across the sky. This magical journey will take us on a ride. Longing, searching for the truth. Will we make it till tomorrow? Will the sun shine on you? Midnight in the desert.